Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad whose taste in anime can only be described as poshcore, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? What the fuck does poshcore mean? <laughs> I don't know. You have been saying fucking like Ravi core, Yanni core, Fundy core, like all this random shit that you keep saying has just gotten me into saying it now too. Okay, core is a thing that people say and... It makes a lot of sense. It came up because we were talking about ZOM 100, and that is an extremely Ravi Core show for many, many reasons. It makes perfect sense. I have never once in my life uttered the phrase undecore. <laughs> I was trying to decide whether I should say hipster core, but I'm like, damn, we've already said hipster a lot to describe you. Might as well use posh. And then I actually Googled hipster core, and that's how I found that pair of underwear that I sent you. For context, I woke up this morning. I just finished Haikyuu. Spoiler alert, our next episode is about Haikyuu. And what does that have to do with you? <laughs> just give me a second. And uh-huh. last night I sent Ravi some thoughts. You know, we we're having a conversation about Haikyuu. I sent him some thoughts, expecting that, you know, whenever he has time, he'll respond to me about Haikyuu, because he loves Haikyuu and it'd be fun to talk about. I did it. respond to and you. And then I just wake up, no response to the latest Haikyuu comment, just a link to some underwear. No other context. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> What does this have to do with anything? And he's like, I don't know. This underwear just seems to seems to fit the description for something that you would get. And I was like, what? I mean, it's what? literally called like Swedish hipster core <laughs> underwear made from wood or some shit like that. But so as dumb. context, because I'm getting fucking slayed here. Why are you saying I didn't respond to you? I did respond to you. I told you that my favorite order is, I think, two, three, four, one. No, two, three, one, four. Don't spoil the next episode. You did respond initially. <laughs> I just was expecting the conversation to continue, and it veered in a very different direction. <laughs> I went to sleep, and then I woke up in the morning, and I was like, immediate first thing I need to do. I haven't prepped anything for the podcast. I got to start prepping. That was the first thing that came to mind. I'm glad you feel comfortable setting the underwear. <laughs> like, yeah. All right, let's get into the news. So the first bit of news, we recorded the last episode, and as soon as we stopped recording, we both went on Twitter, checked the news, and immediately saw this. So it wasn't in the last episode, but it's here. That was actually the Adult Swim event at San Diego Comic-Con, where they just announced a bunch of different cool upcoming projects. So one, which they had already announced I think I actually did talk about it in the last news section, but they gave some more information and showed a trailer for it, which is Watanabe's Lazarus project at MAPPA. They also announced a Junji Ito adaptation directed by Hiroshi Nagihama, who's also the director for Mushishi and Flowers of Evil. Uh, That's Uzumaki, and it's being done at Production IG. I think people are pretty hopeful that there might actually be finally a good Junji Ito anime adaptation. We'll see about that. And then also... Sunghu Park's adaptation of Ninja Kamui, which looks cool, but I don't know anything about, so there's a trailer for that. And the thing that people were making fun of, which is the new Fully Cooly Grunge, which is being done at Mont Blanc Pictures, which looks absolutely terrible. The first three sound and look amazing, though, so definitely excited for that full slate of uh, Adult Swim stuff coming. Yeah, I was going to say all these trailers look amazing, and then you mentioned Fully <laughs> Cooly, so I can't say that. But... Lazarus in particular looks fucking incredible. I, just the soundtrack coming off of that, the way that it meshes with the music is like, you can see that and be like, okay, this is Watanabe. Like, you know you that You watch five seconds of that trailer, you're like, Watanabe. <laughs> exactly. I don't need more. <laughs> yeah, so Park's thing also looks really cool. I know that we argued about him a little bit in our last episode, so it was nice to see that he's working on this new project. The trailer for that also looks amazing. Looks kind of dark, looks pretty gory. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. 
And I haven't heard uh, much about this new thing with the Mushishi director, so it looks exciting. It's really interesting that Adult Swim is just getting very deep into anime now, so, I mean, we'll see what happens with that. I don't even think I get Adult Swim anymore. Like, where the fuck am I going to watch that? Is that going to be on Crunchyroll also streaming, or, like, what is the actual Adult Swim involvement here? But, yeah, they announced everything at San Diego Comic-Con, and... I don't know. It took me by surprise to see all that stuff coming from that panel, but it's exciting. Does anybody even watch TV anymore? (laughs) I I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Then we also got the first trailer for Mario Okada's original movie at MAPPA that's coming out, I think, next year. I don't know if we actually have a date for that. Uh, That's called Alice and Teresa's Illusion Factory or Maboroshi in Japanese. Looks like very typical Mario Okada stuff with some sci-fi supernatural elements a lot of crying maybe emotional beats so we'll see i'm excited for that angel beats (laughs) yeah it's gonna be angel beats the movie (laughs) (laughs) you have nothing else to say about that i'm gonna move on i don't know shit about that (laughs) what do you want me to say about that you're the news guy we also got news unfortunately maybe expectedly that zom 100 episode 5 is going to be delayed by a week that actually came off the back of episode 4 being delayed by a day and we had talked in our first impressions episode already about the animation for episode 1 was insane is bug films as a new studio going to be able to keep that up it seems like the answer unfortunately is no and i will say that the irony of a show that is fundamentally about overwork culture being delayed because of poor production schedules and probably overworking is not lost on me. But that is honestly just sad to see. It sucks. Hey, man, they're getting hit by a typhoon. Give them a break. (laughs) I don't think that's what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sad to see that ZOM 100 is getting delayed. I mean, just as soon as we get near Automata back, it's not a great look for the anime industry. But part of me, I feel like, is also because we're following this a lot more closely. We're seeing it. I'd like to see someone actually like get some data on the number of delays and whether that's actually steadily increasing year to year. But at the same time, we're also increasing the output of a lot of these studios. So I guess it makes sense. My sense is that it is at least somewhat increasing, but it would be interesting to track that. Maybe I'll do that as a side project. <laughs> yeah, man. You can get first author publication. <laughs> data science for anime, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm Submit it about. to jams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reach out to Billy. Can I be second author? <laughs> Actually, can I be first author? Or you can be last author. Sure, yeah. You have to do some of the work for it, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'll put something in MATLAB. Okay, perfect. <laughs> okay, then recently we got the first key visual and trailer for the Mononoke movie that's coming out in 2024. We also knew that Takahiro Sakurai was getting replaced as the medicine seller because of the scandal that he had where he was cheating on his wife. So they wanted to replace him in the movie. And I think people were like, who the fuck could they replace him with? And they replaced him with Hiroshi Kamiya, which is amazing. He sounds great in it. I don't know if it was necessary or not to replace him. That's a debate maybe for a different day, but I am really, really excited for Mononoke. I think it's really cool to see a pretty kind of unique niche work get a sequel and a continuation that I don't think people were necessarily expecting so many years later. This would be a good chance for me to actually go and watch the original. I've seen so many pictures of the artwork. The artwork looks amazing, and so it'd be a nice chance for me to actually get familiar with it now. The trailer they released the trailer right i remember seeing a trailer yeah it also looked very interesting it's nice that it's stuck with the original artwork and that very intricate beautiful color palette with a lot of different kind of tessellated shapes and things like that it looks really really cool yeah i definitely kept the art style 
consistent, although they did slightly change the character design for the medicine seller. I think they changed the color of his hair and stuff, and people were like, oh, no, he's even hotter now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... It's not, uh, what the fuck is the Zelda? Ganondorf. It's yeah. no Ganondorf. It's no Ganon Daddy. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then we got two announcements for shows that are airing in April of next year. So we got the confirmation after the OVA came out that Hibika Euphonium's third season starts then. And then also the first trailer for Kaiju number eight, which I know like oh, looks so n- nothing good. about, but yeah, the trailer looks cool. It looks so good. Yeah, the trailer looks amazing. I mean, the animation looks really cool. It actually looks like it has pretty good integration of CGI into the 2D animation, so I was pleasantly surprised by that. I was going to say, I think that people were happy to see that there is obviously CGI and integration of CGI, but the fact that the kaiju themselves were in 2D, I think people were pleasantly surprised by the fact that that was actually the case. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be true for all of them. Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe. I don't know. I'm going to press X to doubt on that one. But it's also interesting that the art style reminded me a lot of Heavenly Delusion for some reason. It kind of has those like big eyes, like round faces. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. And so I liked the art style in Heavenly Delusion a lot. I still have to go finish it and see what all this controversy is about. So I'll do that at some point. Yeah. Then maybe you can unclick all the spoilers in the Discord. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I just see those black boxes and I'm like, I just can't click on anything anymore because <laughs> I haven't watched a fucking show in weeks at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a huge L. But shut up. <laughs> but I'm really, really excited. The trailer for Kaiju 8 looks amazing. What was the other show that you just mentioned? Hibika Euphonium. You don't care about that one. Oh, yeah. Fucking pass on that one. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> no, it's fine. I will watch it. I did enjoy Hibika Euphonium. We'll see whether there's some more characterization that we can get out of the characters in this third season. I really hope they focus a lot more on the music. That was my major gripe with the previous season. So we have another round to do that. How old is she at this point? It's been fucking like seven years. How is she only in her third year of high school? It's literally just one <laughs> season per year of high school. That's all. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) All right. And then finally, very unsurprisingly, uh, My Hero Academia is getting another movie. So the fourth movie got announced and we will certainly not watch it. (laughs) Oh, I thought we were going to say you're going to watch it together. We've seen the other one. We saw the last one together. Not the last one. We didn't see three. We saw two, I think. We saw the two heroes one. Is that number two? I think that was two. Yeah. Hmm. A third one came out and we didn't see it. You know, if you really want to see it, anything to spend time with you. Yeah, that's We'll go see it. (laughs) What did we go see recently? So that's the last thing that I wanted to say is we did go see the first Slam Dunk last week. Yeah. In its US premiere run. So I wanted to ask you what you thought of first Slam Dunk. So I've never seen any other Slam Dunk thing previously. I don't know if you had. I have not. Yeah, so it was really nice to go and just see a movie. It's been a while since I've had time to go out and do anything. Uh, So it was nice to go and do that. I... Went into it being like, man, do I need to know anything about Slam Dunk? And I think other people had similar worries because Slam Dunk is a really, really historied, well-known franchise. And so, of course, if they're going to make a movie about it, the expectation is that you're going to be having to follow some of it to understand what's going on. And that actually wasn't true. So it was a really great introduction to the franchise for new viewers. Interestingly... What we found out afterwards is that the movie actually revolves around a character that's not the main character. It's another player on the basketball team, the guard. And so it was really cool to see that. And you could go in and just learn about a character without having any background. You had some introduction to the other characters, their backstories that were integrated well through flashbacks as they were going through this kind of match within this tournament. And so... 
you really could just fit in and, and enjoy the sports anime for what it was. The animation was the first thing that I knew that you were a little worried about. I was a little worried about because it was all CGI. It looked amazing. I think the way that they did the CGI, it's not like the traditional CGI that you'll see in, you know, a giant mech show or, you know, something we've seen recently, like fucking the fish from Demon Slayer. You actually forgot very quickly that it was CGI just because it integrated so well. And the art style itself is kind of a unique art style. looked very like brushstrokey. I don't know what the right word for it. Maybe like the way that Zelda's animated, the cell shading. It just looked very interesting. The music was fucking incredible. I actually went and just downloaded the soundtrack right after that. I think we all that. did. <laughs> the thing that really stood out to me, the thing that really got me hyped is the intro sequence. The intro sequence yeah. is actually incredible when they just start off with line drawings of the characters walking towards you with the soundtrack in the background. Overall, really fun time. Would highly recommend people go see it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think... They did a lot of interesting things with this movie. As you mentioned, Slam Dunk is such a big franchise, and they literally, for this movie, just adapted one of the most hype games from later on in the manga. I think it is actually where the anime adaptation, the original one, left off in the manga. And to be able to thread a movie in the way that it will still be really enjoyable for people who are huge fans of the franchise, but also be a really nice introduction to where you could go see it the way that we did, where you haven't seen any slam dunk and you can still get a very nice contained super hype basketball game, I think was a really smart decision. And it's really hard to thread that in the way that they did, but I really, really enjoyed it. It, I think instantly made me want to go read or watch more slam dunk just because of how, how hype it was. So I can see exactly why this movie is so massively successful in Japan and in other countries and probably will be in the U.S. as well. I think it actually passed Suzume in terms of the box office numbers, which is crazy. So it is a huge mm-hmm. movie. You mentioned the animation. I was a little worried about the CGI, but I think you can very quickly see why they chose to do the CGI. Obviously, it still comes across as a little bit stiff and awkward in some very specific places. But overall, the art style allowed them to do so many cool hype things as if you were actually watching a game of basketball. Like as somebody who actually does watch a lot of live-action basketball, quote-unquote. Don't ever say that again. (laughs) We're not doing this fucking live-action animated (laughs) bullshit again. It was honestly amazing to see all the different camera angles, all the different shots that CGI allowed them to put in the film to make it feel like you were actually just watching this one game. So I really enjoyed it as like this really fun summer movie that was just a bunch of pure hype sports anime and If it's showing near where you are, do you have a chance to go see it? Maybe you're apprehensive about either the CGI or the fact that you don't know much about Slam Dunk. Just go see it anyways. You'll for sure have at least a good time watching it, I think. I didn't say anything explicitly about the movie. And so I did want to add a little section. Maybe that's a bit spoilery. So if you haven't seen it, go skip ahead. But I'll do that now. The fact at the end that they make this guy completely fucking dead right he has like a broken back and he's like nah man I'm still going on the court and you find out later that that is the actual main character from Slam Dunk so you understand a little bit about the shonen protagonist is coming back on and like helping to win the game because I the entire movie having never seen Slam Dunk was like oh the guy they're focusing the movie on is the main character but at the end of the movie this other guy ends up getting the brunt of the character development the brunt of the playtime and scores like all the points to win the game with a fucking broken back as everyone on the team is like, no, no, don't get up. You're going to have like fucking catastrophic injuries from this. You're never going to play basketball again. And he's like, 
this is my time in life to shine. Coach is like, no, really, I don't want you to do this. He's like, coach, no, I got this. This is my time. Wins the game. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? 90% of the movie was amazing. The last 10% of the movie was like kind of meme because people in the theater were also laughing that this guy is like completely dead yet is still helping to win the game. It is funny because he's like kind of the comic relief character because he's this guy that is just like athletically gifted but not actually that good at basketball. And kind of works his way into that. I assume that's a lot of what Slam Dunk follows. For all I said about the realism of its basketball sequences, there is definitely a little bit of like, this guy is like breaking his spinal cord. Why is he fucking playing right now? That doesn't make any sense. But otherwise, I did really enjoy it. And I think that they were able to, throughout this one game and like stretching it out, actually give little bits of flashback and backstory to every single one of the main five or six characters on the team. So that actually also worked pretty well that even though they focused on one of the side characters from the main series they did try to give everybody on the team some kind of introduction and backstory that i think worked pretty well the other thing that i think is really interesting is that takahiko inoue is the original mangaka for slam dunk he actually directed this too i don't know many manga artists or writers who are willing to just bet on themselves to direct a movie like this but for somebody who's not actually a director, really did an incredible job and clearly had a vision for what he wanted this movie to look like. Yeah, that's really cool. I think everybody should go watch it. It was really nice seeing it in theaters with other fans of the franchise. Yeah. Like the girl sitting next to us that was full on weeping at like certain yes. points was actually <laughs> hilarious. And then lights turn on and look over and I'm like, she's wearing the full jersey <laughs> from the school and everything like that. Just fucking like tears on her face. And I was like, damn, this is nice seeing it in the presence of a real fan. We've definitely talked about having hit or miss theater experiences watching anime, and we definitely had some bad ones. But this was actually one of the really positive experiences where it felt like you were in a theater having a collective viewing experience with a ton of people who were just genuinely really excited about the movie and the franchise and were not being disruptive or anything and just really naturally just enjoying the movie and that definitely makes it a more enjoyable experience especially when you are watching people dunk or like do something sick and then everybody in the crowd reacts or is like anticipating it and so it makes it a pretty fun experience i think you need a good theater experience considering like at the end of the movie there is a what like two minute long sequence with no audio and you're just sitting there watching it and i'm like (laughs) if you didn't have a good crowd watching it together you would be fucking killing yourself we got lucky though so yeah we did get lucky we definitely recommend people go see it definitely a good time all right. You're not going to talk about Gear 5, bro? It's breaking the internet. Isn't that spoilers? <laughs> is that spoilers? I mean, yeah, it is spoilers, but everybody and their mom is talking about it now. So you might as well talk about it. All right. One Piece Gear 5 transformation episode happened. Luffy has white hair now. There's a lot of stuff floating around on social media. It looks sick. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I am not caught up with One Piece right now, so I don't think I can give you any spoilers. But One Piece has been building up to a new transformation for Luffy for months, if not years now. And this is slowly, especially if you follow some of the animation directors or staff working on One Piece, has been getting more and more hype as the Wano arc has gone on. I mean, they literally dropped a trailer for just the Gear 5 episode, the one that just aired after we're recording (laughs) this episode. We really follow some directors, Thoreau, for example. Yeah, Henry Thurlow. But there are a lot of people we know or we've talked about on the podcast who are working on it, like Vincent Chensard is the Mm -hmm. animator who's working on it. They brought in Weyland Zhang, actually, who we talked about, did the 
opening animation for Heavenly Delusion that we both really liked. He did like a full big cut as his debut on the Gear 5 sequence for One Piece. So they really brought the A-team for this episode specifically and the next one that is coming out, which I think is kind of the brunt of the fight after the transformation. So you can't go on social media without (laughs) seeing some Gear 5 stuff. So as I said, we've been following the directors and artists very closely over the past few months. And it's really been building up to this moment with a number of different things being released, right? Like, for example, Thurlow would show storyboards from the episode that he directed, would kind of hint at major, major things coming on. So excitement's been building, and all of a sudden, this episode dropped. And you can look throughout social media, see the number of people posting how Crunchyroll immediately broke when they dropped the episode. A whole bunch of pirating websites also (laughs) broke when, when they dropped the episode. So people are super excited about it. It looks amazing. Somebody posted like a 122 minute long sequence where Luffy is fighting the main protagonist from Wano, and you're just like, what the fuck is this on x.com now? Because it's no longer called Twitter. So I am super excited to eventually get caught up with this. I'm really glad that One Piece has the level of popularity that it has on social media. It's exciting, and I'm really glad that more people are watching what is going to be one of the most well-known anime of all time. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, but it's always cool that One Piece is this weekly series that amazingly has just continually been animated and obviously that comes with its faults that I think a lot of One Piece fans have talked about with the pacing of the anime adaptation compared to the manga and stuff but every now and then you get this like hype set of episodes that just completely break out of the One Piece community into just the broader anime community and for a weekly series that is so popular that is able to do that is honestly just pretty amazing so it is really cool to see. Agreed. All right, so on today's episode, we're going to be discussing a studio that we haven't really talked a lot about on the podcast thus far, but that still made some of the most well-known anime over the past decade, Studio White Fox. White Fox may not have the storied past of studios like Gainax or Madhouse, or be as active as studios like MAPPA, but their works such as ReZero, Steinsgate, and Girls Last Tour are often just as well regarded by the anime community. Today we'll be giving y'all some background on White Fox, discussing what makes this studio distinct, and then walking through our top five White Fox anime. So let's get into it. So Yanni, if we had a matchup between Subaru and Goku, who would win? I mean, naturally, Goku would beat the shit out of him, but Subaru, like, can't die. I mean, he can die. He'll just get revived. Yeah, he's always going to revive. So if he has that power active, isn't he just, like, kind of fucking invincible? He's going to suffer. A lot. A lot. (laughs) Does he win by default? What can he do to eventually beat Goku, right? Nothing. Goku will just get tired. (laughs) <laughs> you think you'd get tired, bro? The guy is fucking Super Saiyan. Like, yeah, but like everybody has a limit, right? Oh, oh I don't know, man. <laughs> Isn't that the entire point of Dragon Ball? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the layout for the episode, I wanted to just start by asking you what your general opinion is on White Fox's studio. Since as you mentioned in the introduction, we've talked actually quite a bit about some of the series which we'll probably end up talking about, but we've not really talked about the studio itself. So what's kind of your general feel of the studio and its productions? 
Yeah, I honestly hadn't thought a lot about it before making this episode. We've obviously seen and loved a lot of White Fox anime, and we've talked at length about shows like Devils of Part-Timer and ReZero and Steins Gate, which we've done individual episodes on even. But I don't think any one of us really spent a lot of time thinking about what makes the studio unique or what brings the works that the studio has put out together. And so this is the first time I actually thought deeply about that and saw that there are some connections among the studio's works. It's in the whole realm of anime studios, relatively newer. It started in 2007. So it's, again, as I said, not as stored as studios like Madhouse or like Trigger, etc. But it seems like the works that they put out are works that the anime community really enjoys, that they're dedicated to producing. I wouldn't compare them to KyoAni because I don't know what their working conditions, et cetera, are like. But it seems like they are very selective about the works that they actually make. And they only make a work that comes out once a year, once every other year. And so it's nice to see that they're pacing themselves appropriately. And the works that come out, you can reliably count on to be of good quality and hearken back to the actual work that they're adapting. People who like the work that they're adapting are going to be fans of the work that gets adapted. And that's really nice to see. Yeah, I think Fox is pretty interesting, actually, because I think for most anime fans and me included, they're held in actually pretty high regard because they've made massively popular shows like Steins Gate and ReZero. And as you mentioned, they in general tend to have pretty good quality for the things that they adapt. So typically, if you're an anime fan, you like a project and you hear that Fox is the studio behind it, that's usually a positive. And for me, that was also true. And they made a few other niche shows, which we'll talk about that I really love. But when I started to look more closely at their productions, as you said, they pretty consistently make one or two anime a year since their founding. That's great if they actually have healthier production schedules. I, from research, as you'll see in the background section, can't really tell if that's true or not. It's, it is often obscure, so TBD on that. But among the work that they're most known for, which are obviously of super high quality, there are a lot of light novel adaptations. Yeah. Like a lot that I probably wouldn't watch. And I don't think I realized just how much light novel content they've adapted throughout their entire catalog. It's nice to see that. I mean, it seems like, yeah, their forte seems to be visual novels and light novels, right? And early on, it seemed like visual novels were their thing. It seems like they've transitioned to more light novel work with things like ReZero and Devil is a Part-Timer. And I'm glad that they can actually do the source material justice. Yeah. Because you can't say that about most studios nowadays. Yeah, There are a lot of studios you certainly can't say that about, even some of the bigger, more popular ones. And I think that, for the most part, certainly is the case with White Fox. So. Yeah, it seems like we're transitioning to the point in the podcast era where there are definitely still studios that are massive that we haven't talked about. Madhouse. They keep talking <laughs> about Madhouse, right? Bones we haven't done. OLM. We could talk about fucking Pokemon. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I'm going to we'll do that, actually. OLM a little bit today. <laughs> Or like A1 Pictures, like, right, we've talked about different series that yeah. these studios have made, but haven't really focused on them yet. But I think after the ones that we've already done seem to have like a specific feel or, you know, ethos yeah. or something that ties together their works. And yeah. we're moving off into the era now where 
the studios are going to be talking about are either going to be making a ton of works, and so therefore there's going to be highly variable, or just not that many works, right? And so we're getting into this middle ground now where we're going to have to start working on trying to figure out oh, what ties these works together. And, and White Fox seems to be the first one of these. When we were actually planning this episode, we were like, oh, what studio should we do next? Literally, we were just went on the Wikipedia for anime <laughs> studios, and we were like... Let's do White Fox, right? Yeah. We're in the era now where we could have picked any studio, but we're picking White Fox just because we had watched most of the shows. Yeah. And also because there are still some thematic ties, whereas when we go to studios like Madhouse, we'll have to actually watch like 40 shows to understand <laughs> what the studio is doing and what ties it together. Yeah. All right. Speaking of which, you stole my thunder a little bit. I'm going to recapitulate a little bit in the next section, but Fuck we'll start you. out by talking about some background about the studio. Then we'll talk about, as you were just talking about, some of the common themes and style of White Fox anime adaptations. And then we'll do our top five rankings. So as usual, if you haven't been with us for a top five episode, we go in inverse order from five up to one, alternating, and try to argue whose ranking is better. I think our ranking is going to be pretty similar. If we don't have the same number one, I will be excessively shocked. (laughs) I'm going to say we're probably not going to have the same number one. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I can't believe that, but okay. (laughs) Okay, more on that later. (laughs) All right, so let's start with the background on White Fox. So as you were kind of just mentioning, typically these studio background sections are actually pretty easy for me to put together. And that's because we focused so far in the podcast run on relatively well-established and known studios. KyoAni, Studio Ghibli, Trigger, Wit, and Mappa are the ones that we've done. And these all have pretty large catalogs that have some specific style or some interesting history and their founding and their production, which means that usually I can just read through a few articles, get a pretty sizable amount of material for the section, and then I'm kind of just done. But now we're transitioning to covering studios that have a lot less readily available information. And White Fox is definitely one of them where I had to do a lot more digging than I normally had to do. And so I did that digging and I think there's a lot of stuff here that's relevant and provides some insight, but we'll see how this goes compared to the usual (laughs) studio background section. As just like a way to showcase what I mean, go to Wikipedia and type in White Fox Anime Studio. The history section is like three sentences. (laughs) There's like nothing there. I kind of like it now that we have to do a little bit of digging. You get to know a lot more about the industry in the space. Well, let's find out if that was true. So White Fox was founded in 2007 by Gaku Iwasa, who was a former staff member at OLM. For those that don't know, OLM is separated into distinct production teams that are responsible for certain series or franchises and are credited as such in the productions. Team Iwasa was responsible for much of the Pokemon series, which you literally just mentioned. And he left with his team to found White Fox after adapting the Utawa Rerumono visual novel. That is such a hard fucking title to say. Yo, bro, be better. Try. Nihongo Jozu. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) And I think tracing these lineages from where these different teams at OLM and at other studios come and go from is actually pretty interesting. So for example, Team Kojima is led by Hiroki Kojima. They disbanded from OLM in 2022 to establish Bug Films, which we just talked about after their debut with ZOM 100. And they actually made that transition after putting out Summertime Rendering, which came out last year. And then in the infrastructure, one of the newest teams at OLM is led by Katsuhiro Matsuda, who was a former producer at MAPPA. So I think if you're actually interested in 
a little bit more about how the industry works, going to OLM or maybe another studio that operates this way and looking at how these teams are formed and where they move around to in terms of founding studios or working on projects is really interesting and shows how strong the connections are in the anime industry, just like kind of any other industry. It's very incestuous it's in the way that, I mean, yeah, it's definitely nepotism, but we talk about the industry and how it's growing, but it's still relatively small in terms of the hierarchy. Like the top people are still on the order of like tens or dozens of people that are really well known. And I mean, this might be like a nice kind of apprenticeship thing where you train up a person and when they feel like they are fledged enough to go on and do their own thing. They just form new studios. Uh, and that's nice to see that all of these new studios are getting made and like that allows things like ZOM 100 to come into existence with bug films. At the same time, I'm really sad to see things change because obviously taking that you know artistic, creative spirit away from this company and moving to a different company may prevent White Fox at some time from making the quality of work that they've done previously. And we've seen that in the way that they've had to give away things like Devil's a Part-Timer to 3 Hertz. And I wonder whether this breaking up of the company is part of that. I should clarify, I was talking about OLM teams, not White Fox teams. It's the same thing. No one has left White Fox. <laughs> no, there has someone that's left White Fox, I think. There are certainly people that are left, but I don't think White Fox yeah. is not big enough like OLM is to have these different producer teams in exactly yeah. the same way. So the examples I gave were from OLM, but yeah, certainly people come and go. I mean, we talked about in our MAPPA episode, how MAPPA was founded by Moriyama, who came from Madhouse, was kind of disillusioned with the direction the Madhouse was going. And that led to a lot of really cool initial projects at MAPPA, which then, you know, MAPPA became what it became today. But we talked about that. Another example is Studio Trigger getting founded by people from Gainax and kind of breathing new life into the studio that way. So all these connections, as you mentioned, are pretty incestuous, but they are interesting in getting a feel for how the industry works. I think White Fox has had a major person leave. Like That's certainly possible. The creative director for things like Devil's a Part-Timer and ReZero, and he went off to do his own thing. And I think that may have been part of why ReZero had to be passed on to Studio 3 Hertz. And then we you mean Devil's a Part-Timer, but yeah. Devil's a Part-Timer, yeah. Had to be passed on to 3 Hertz, yeah. All right, so the studio's first production was an adaptation of a visual novel called Tears to Tiara in 2009, and this was followed by an adaptation of Nisio Isin's light novel Katanagatari in 2010. This production actually made quite a bit of news, not because of the anime itself, but because the production was the target of a cyber attack where production materials like storyboards, character designs, and even the entire opening itself were all leaked. I think Maybe now we live in a time where people don't appreciate this as much because we see leaks float around a lot more often. But at the time in 2010 or whatever, it was one of the biggest leaks that had happened in the industry to the point that White Fox had to actually go out and issue public apologies to the fans and all of the artists and creators and stuff like that. So it was a really, really big deal at the time. Following that, the studio and Iwasa in particular were drawn to visual novel adaptations, and this experience allowed them to launch what would become one of their signature works in 2011, which was, of course, Steins Gate. Steins Gate's VN was part of the science adventure franchise and quickly became a modern classic for its depiction of time travel. White Fox went on to adapt the prequel to Steins Gate called Steins Gate Zero in 2018, as well as a variety of OVAs and alternate episode 23 called Open the Missing Link, and the sequel movie Load Region of Deja Vu in 2013. In terms of franchises, White Fox's other hit adaptation is undoubtedly that of ReZero. In a way, that's time travel again, I guess. Whose first season aired in 2016 with a director debut from Masaharu Watanabe, who was known for his animation work on Naruto. 
ReZero took a similar route to Steinsgate with a second season airing in 2020, a third announced for 2024, so that's coming out next year, along with multiple OVA films such as Memory Snow and The Frozen Bond in 2018-2019. Apart from these two hits, White Fox has produced very little original content. I think there is just one original series that they've ever worked on that came out in 2016 called Matoy the Sacred Slayer. Have you ever even heard of that? I saw it when I was scrolling through the list of things, but <laughs> before that, never heard of this. Me neither. <laughs> and they mainly, as we mentioned, have adapted light novels such as The Devil is a Part-Timer in 2013, Grimoire of Zero in 2015, Goblin Slayer in 2018, and Ari yeah. in 2019. A little bit more on Ari Ferretta in a second. Trailer for Goblin Slayer 2. We also <laughs> missed that in the news section. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's actually this interest in light novels and isekai that prompted White Fox to, in conjunction with management company Egg Firm, that is actually their name, invest in the founding of Studio Bind and its production of Mushoku Tensei. So they are actually one of the core investors in the founding of Studio Bind. It's interesting, I think, that before Mushoku Tensei, it seems like the works that they put out did not have a lot of fanfare surrounding them until people saw the first couple of episodes. Like when ReZero came out, no one was really talking about ReZero coming out. Or same thing with Steinsgate, because I think like even though there was a possibly strong following within the visual novel community, that didn't really extend into the larger space. And after a couple of episodes, it broke open and a ton of people are now interested in things like ReZero. Mushoku Tensei was one where the hype for it was steadily building up until it came out and everyone was like, holy shit, Mushoku Tensei is coming out. I never saw that for any of the previous White Fox works. Yeah, it's interesting also because Mushoku Tensei is not theirs. <laughs> yeah. With ReZero, I think that's probably true. That was like kind of just when I was getting into anime. So I know ReZero blew up, but I don't recall exactly when. But it is certainly very possible that it was like kind of throughout its run that more people got interested in it to the point that it became the big franchise that it is now. And that was kind of around the time of Isekai getting a lot more popular after Sword Art Online. Steinsgate, I have no idea what the trajectory of popularity yeah. for Steinsgate is. Obviously, now it is considered a modern classic, but... 2011 was way too early for me to have any idea what the pulse of the anime scene was like. I really don't think many things that they've invested in have been super, super popular until they've actually made the work. I'm really interested to see where they're going in the future. Whatever they're making right now, I've fucking never heard of. And so... can't remember what they're working on now. The main thing I know that's coming out is season three of ReZero. Mm. But yeah, they're working on something else now. That, I don't know what it is. White Fox, of course, does have some manga adaptations, and among those are Jorman Gone, which came out in 2012, A Kamiga Kill in 2014, and Girls Last Tour in 2017. And finally, there are a few other small stories I was able to dig up about the studio. So one is that Ari Ferretta's adaptation was actually another controversy, since its author hated the storyboards and the screenplays that he was sent during its pre-production period. So for those that don't know, often authors receive these ahead of time during the production and they can give feedback on certain materials so the studio can adjust things the way that the author wants. But Ryoshi Rakame, who is the author of Ari Ferretta, posted all of his criticisms on social media and demanded that there would be a studio change. This meant that a studio called As Read, which I have never heard of in my life, took over Ari Ferretta's adaptation with White Fox coming in as sort of a supporting studio. But of course, the production schedule was fucked with the changeover and delays. So the adaptation looks really, really bad. I actually haven't watched Ari Ferretta. From the clips I've seen and the consensus just seems to be that it looks horrible. And like, obviously, a huge studio change in the middle of production is just not going to be good news for any anime adaptation. And it's crazy to hear that the 
author of the source material was just like, I'm taking these qualms of mine to the streets. <laughs> I understand the perspective to want to have more of a hand in the work that you yeah. literally own. Surely you can sort that out. On the out. other hand, like maybe think about the consequences <laughs> that's going to have if you're like, oh yeah, this massive anime production company. Yeah, fuck them. Yeah. Speaking of controversies, fairly recently, they actually had another one where they had to issue an apology for engaging in gender discriminatory hiring practices. Oh, you hate to hear that. You really do hate to hear that. Where what happened was that a production assistant position specified that the person they wanted to hire should be a woman under the age of 26. This is obviously illegal under Japan's Equal Employment Opportunity Law, which Iwasa explained the company had just learned about and that they had always been advertising their positions this way, even though that law was passed in 1972. So, like, I don't know. I don't know what whether that's happened. really a justification, <laughs> man, to be like, no, 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 we were always doing this, <laughs> We <though."> didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> we only hire people under the age of 26. And they must be women. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Finally, White Fox also actually has a second studio called White Fox Izukogen, which is based in the countryside outside of Tokyo as a training studio for rookie animators. And sometimes the studio is used for in-betweening White Fox shows if they need a little extra help with some of those cuts. And this process of this second studio helping with some of the cuts as kind of a training program actually started with ReZeros. Maybe this feeds into a little bit of what you were talking about, where maybe they have some sort of potentially positive work culture if they have this specific training studio for rookie animators that then they can hire and bring in-house and then have a cleaner pipeline with the much more limited production schedule that they have. Of course, for all we know, the conditions and the pay and everything in that second studio might just be shit and like none of this matters, but potentially it is slightly better than the norm. Yeah, it's nice to see that they have this Again, apprenticeship program, which seems like a lot of the way that anime works, right? As I said, it's still relatively small, I think, in the hierarchical structure. At the top, you really have a few connections between people as you're coming up. And the number of like directors is actually not that large, right? So when someone breaks out, like when we talked about uh, who did Odd Taxi? Who did Odd Taxi? I have no idea. <laughs> he talked about the debut for this director was Odd Taxi, right? Oh, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot his name. Oh, Baku Kinoshita. He hasn't done anything since then. There we go. See, when you have a director that breaks out with a work like Odd Taxi, like Baku Kinoshita did, it makes a splash. And so it's nice to see that they had to have an apprenticeship program that's getting people up to hopefully these levels. I don't know whether that's good enough to justify the other things that are going on. Probably not. <laughs> Hopefully, this is a model that other places can start using, too. Oh, I guess there was the Odd Taxi mainly recap movie with a tiny bit of extra content that came out last year. So I guess he worked on that, but hasn't worked on anything since. Nothing else. That's Nothing unfortunate. Else. Well, I don't know. Maybe next year we'll get something. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's all the things that I could find about Fox. Yeah, it's a good amount of stuff. We'll let our Discord decide. Yeah. That was good enough. <laughs> so as you said, the studios that we've covered thus far in the podcast have generally been those with a very distinct style. You know, studios like KyoAni or Ghibli or Trigger, where you can watch a few minutes of their animation and just say, oh, yeah, like that's obviously something that was directed by Imaishi from Trigger or Miyazaki from Ghibli. But now, here, and as we go on forward, I think we're going to start talking about studios where that's maybe less true, like Madhouse or Bones or A1, or even 
like Pierrot, right? If there's any chance we're ever going to talk about Studio Pierrot, you're going to have to watch like fucking massive, massive Talk about right? JC's staff before we talk about Pierrot. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean that these studios don't still have defining characteristics or something that makes them unique and recognizable within the anime community. And White Fox is definitely one of those studios. Since its inception in 2007, White Fox has made a number of shows that were, I think, released with little fanfare. Although, again, I wasn't necessarily focusing on the anime community at that time. But quickly became some of the most recognized and beloved shows of the past few decades. And one major reason for that is the first theme that I want to talk about, which is White Fox's dedication to adaptation. As you said, it's made its name adapting visual novels and light novels, as many studios do. But the reason that White Fox stands out in the animation space is because it puts in the effort to adapt its titles in a way that speaks to fans of the original content and shows these fans that they care about the work they're adapting. One of the best examples of this is ReZero, where... Sure, the quality of the production is superb and the animation is amazing and the soundtrack is fantastic. But the thing that really stood out to anime fans was that each episode got its full 29-minute runtime. We talked about that often forgoing the intro or ending in favor of more story. And that really showed audiences that the studio and their production company were dedicated to adapting the story to its fullest extent. Over the years, with shows like Steins Gate and Devil's Part-Timer, I think White Fox has proved itself to be a fan favorite for its reliability and its commitment. And this is something that, like with other studios, for example, Wit, that if they can't put in the time to adapt a story to its fullest extent, they might have to pass it off. And we've seen that with Devil's a Part-Timer. So I don't know much about the studio and its inner workings, but if it is like that, I mean, I have to say props to White Fox for not working on things that they know they can't do or they can't give its full power. Unfortunately, that also means that we'll get something amazing and then sequel seasons will have to bite the bullet on, which is unfortunate for us. I think it is also worth mentioning that adapting visual novels and light novels is inherently just more difficult than adapting manga because with manga, you have at least some sort of drawn layout for what the anime should look like. And obviously it's still a lot of work to adapt the manga well, so I don't want to discredit that. But there are a lot of good, certainly light novel and visual novel adaptations. But, you know, with a light novel, you are mostly taking text and you have to make up everything but the limited sketches or character designs that you get from the light novel. And with visual novels, it's even harder because you have to take a completely different story structure that is set up for someone having agency and choice and all these different routes and somehow make that into a cohesive narrative. And so the art of adapting those two things is just harder than adapting manga. You need a much more unified, I think, creative vision and idea for what the source material is at its core and what you want to show in an adaptation. So it's definitely to the studio's credit that they've done a good job adapting those kind of source material. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, yeah, adapting something like... Steinsgate, the way that they pull that off is actually incredible. Considering I have looked at the visual novel, obviously I haven't played the visual novel, but I've looked at the visual novel and... You don't have like 115 hours to spare? What are you talking about? Uh, do people talk <laughs> about Steinsgate and Clan Ed and things like that. And like after watching the shows, I really do want to go play them. The amount of brain power required to do that is probably like 
not like super intense, like something like Persona 5 is still like you're thinking a lot about all of the resource management and shit like that. Playing a visual novel, it sounds like it could be emotionally tying, like you could really get tied into that. But the actual brain power, I think, would be perfect for the amount I can devote to right now. So minus the time. (laughs) Don't tempt me. (laughs) But yeah, the way that they did things like Steins Gate is just genuinely incredible working off the material that they had. So although White Fox has certainly worked on shows across a variety of genres, a number of its works are defined by their darkness and by their maturity, which is the second theme that I want to discuss. When comparing shows like Jormungund and ReZero and Akame Ga Kill, the most obvious similarity is the atmosphere of these shows. They're often dark with an emphasis on death and violence. And they're relatively graphic in the way that they don't shy away from showing death on screen. Of course, when we talk about Battle Shonen, 99% of Battle Shonen have these themes. But the vast majority of these shift the focus away from an actual nuanced portrayal of death and violence, choosing to instead glorify things like combat and its consequences, where shows by White Fox instead choose to portray the moral ambiguity and horror associated with death. Even what may appear as more lighthearted shows in White Fox's repertoire, like Girls' Last Tour, are still strikingly mature in the way that they show the bleakness of a world ravaged and ruined by war. And you can't say that about a lot of studios' works, especially now where we're inundated by shitty isekai and battle shonen where studios are just trying to make money to survive to make their next big work. Whereas again, White Fox seems to have this belief that you're going to make a few shows and those shows are going to be nuanced discussions of the topics going on. I don't want to glorify the studio itself, but a number of their shows have shown me that this is a common theme throughout what they're producing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think They're also, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but they are also pretty limited in terms of the genres that they cover. It is really primarily science fiction and then fantasy slash isekai. They don't really make other kind of battle shonen. They don't really make primarily slice of life shows, no romance. Like it is very, very focused in terms of the repertoire of shows that they're interested in and that they know how to adapt. Yeah, and even within those, right? Like we talk about isekai, almost all of their works have been in the dark fantasy realm as opposed to just the generic like harem isekai, right? And Girls' Last Tour is a seinen, right? It's a, uh, is it a slice of life seinen? Yeah, it is slice of life-y, so that's why I kind of said more of a pure lighthearted slice of life. And even then it's very dark. It it, it has dark elements. I'll talk about this, I guess, fucking spoiler for my top five, but... <laughs> oh, damn, never would have expected Girls Last Tours in your top five. I'll talk about it. It certainly is slice of life, and it certainly has strong messages about war and society and all these kind of things, so there is that dark element to it that contrasts with some of the more optimistic parts of the series. It's definitely along the more, quote-unquote, lighthearted <laughs> works that they've made, which I think already says something. Yeah. All right, so my third and final theme is closely associated with the second but I wanted to spend some time on it separately because it's something that I've seen in many of White Fox's shows and something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and that we've spent a lot of time discussing here, and that's loss and its psychological consequences. In shows like Steinsgate and ReZero and Akame Ga Kill, we see what effect losing loved ones, often repetitively, has on a person's psychological state. And the way that White Fox portrays this spiral into madness is just superb. 
For example, ReZero's protagonist, Subaru, is someone that I think we both have a love-hate relationship with, <laughs> but that we can also deeply relate to because of how realistic his characterization Speak is. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I fucking hate Subaru sometimes. <laughs> you have to say you have a love-hate relationship with Subaru. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay, okay. I don't think I relate to Subaru. <laughs> oh, you don't think you relate to him? Dude, he's a normal dude, right? He's like he's a normal he's guy a with normal neat. flaws. Am I a neat? <laughs> thrust into a super door. Yeah, well, you're a fucking like massive weave out here. <laughs> that doesn't make me a shut-in. <laughs> if you could be a shut-in, man, and just fucking play Genshin and watch fucking like, I don't know, Madoka all day, you would. So, yeah, like I said, Subaru is thrust into this super normal situation. He's thrown into this fantasy world with this ability, like in a video game, to just revive at a checkpoint after he dies. But as opposed to the vast majority of other isekai where a protagonist would just game the system with his overwhelming power and intellect and reach the best possible ending while also simultaneously accumulating his entire harem, Subaru fails and he fails and he fails. And every one of those failures is marked by the death of someone he cares for and himself, right? He fucking dies every time this happens. And when that happens in the first season, you know, I'm not going to spoil it here. Maybe we'll get into spoilers later. But you clearly see the trauma that this is inflicting upon him, where, like, it stops becoming about all the people around him he's seeing dying, which becomes his kind of motivating factor later on in the series and especially in the second season. But early on when he's dying repetitively, the fact that you have to go through that every single time, even if you want to restart, like, if you're like, oh, man, I just want to restart here because I've hit this checkpoint, you have to die. That is fucking terrifying. And the way the show illustrates that psychological consequence of death and loss is why so many people, including myself, hold it in such high regard. I think the same is true of Okabe's Descent into Madness in Steins Gate, as he sees repetitively characters around him that he loves just die, and he can't do anything to save them, and he slowly goes mad because of it. And also, and surprisingly maybe, the doubt and internal conflict that Mao experiences in Devil's Apart-Timers as he starts to realize that maybe what he was doing in his past life wasn't the right way to go about living his life. And, and maybe he should have more empathy for other people. And so it's really nice to see the way that White Fox, as opposed to so many other studios, spends the time exploring these psychological consequences. Mad scientist became sad scientist. Damn, how long were you waiting to say that? <laughs> I just thought of Is it. Is that written down somewhere? <laughs> no, I literally just thought of it. <laughs> All right. I think that's all for the themes. So let's just get into the top five. As I mentioned, we go in inverse order. We'll alternate. And if one of us has a show that is on the other person's list, we'll just say at that point where in the list it is and stop and have a discussion about it then. I am actually flabbergasted that you think we're not going to have the save top one. So I thought I had a pretty good handle on what was happening, but maybe I just absolutely <laughs> not. So <laughs> give me your number five pick. All right. I'm going to start off this section by saying that I fucking hate Akame Got Kill. <laughs> this show is absolute fucking trash and deserves to be <laughs> fired into the sun for what it did to its characters. The reason that this is number five on my list is because I actually enjoyed the show quite a bit for its gruesome story and its cast of characters until it decided to do what I absolutely hate and kill literally every character off. And sure, that's a spoiler, but no one fucking cares. You're probably never going to watch the <laughs> show anyway. 
I hate the no character is safe trope because it too often takes characters that are not fully developed and just kills them off to try and evoke cheap feels within the viewer. And that's exactly what Akimet Got Killed did. That's exactly what shows like Game of Thrones did. And I really hate that because again, this falls prey to what I think is wasted potential, right? Because you have a cast of characters that you are spending time building up. You're spending time with them, showing the viewer their backstories and their motivations and their relationships. And then you just start killing them off, right? Whereas you could have spent more time caring about them. And what Akimaka Kill did, what Game of Thrones did, what many other shows do, is it just falls into this rut of, okay, I'm going to kill a character that everyone likes off, but then I'm going to start killing characters that are just fucking side characters that no one cares about and you've met for two seconds. And I hate that. So... The show is based on a manga series, and it follows Tatsumi, a naive boy from a small village, who embarks on a journey to the capital with dreams of making enough money to help the people from his hometown. He quickly finds his dream in tatters, and as he loses hope, he meets and is inducted into Night Raid, an assassin group whose goal is to fight corruption in the capital and overthrow the prime minister, whose name is ironically Honest. Wow. <laughs> whose greed has brought the nation to ruin. As Tatsumi fights alongside the members of Night Raid, he discovers new goals and new reasons to live and to kill. So I don't know what you think of that synopsis. It sounds edgy as fuck. Yeah. And... That's basically my impression of the show. <laughs> exactly. That is exactly what everyone was talking about in like 2014 or 2015 when this show came out and was getting popular. People were going off about it because it was supposed to be super dark and super edgy. People talked about the edgier romances like Shakugan no Shana and things like that. And in the same breath, they'd be like, yeah, man, are you watching like Akeme Got Kill out here? Oh, man, this show is super dark. Like, I fucking love it, right? Yeah, it's dark. It's fucking edgy. But what happens throughout it is you actually start to care about the characters around Tatsumi. At least I did. Maybe people who think the show is shit would say differently. <laughs> But what I started to do is I started to be like, oh, man, like this band of characters surrounding him is interesting. And there's so much to explore with every character's backstory and how corruption has ruined their lives and what's motivating them to now work as this force for justice. Right. It's like very fucking Batman Justice league -y. And like every superhero movie, you start to get behind the characters and want them to succeed against corruption. And what the show then does is, in an edgy as fuck way, start to kill off every single character around Tatsumi. And spoilers, even fucking Tatsumi dies at the very fucking <laughs> end of the show. And you're just like, why did I watch this when every character is just fucking dying? There's no happiness to be found, which is, you know, fine. There doesn't need to be some happiness that's found. But it just falls into the, okay, we've beat the main big bad out here. And now like this other character is going to go find their new redemption story on this like path into the sunset. And I hated that. And the thing is, the thing that really frustrates me is that manga readers were really hyping the show up back in the day. I think like some manga readers would still hype this manga up because the show veers off the manga. And for everything we've just said about White Fox and how much it dedicates to actually the craft of adapting a manga or visual novel or light novel or whatever, what actually happened is the manga, I think, was unfinished at that point. 
and had a sequel that was coming out. And so White Fox just chose to veer off to an anime-only ending. And it just fucking sucked. And I hated it. If you go look at my mouth, I think I gave the show like a three or a four because it just made me so mad. I don't know much about a comic I kill. My only encounter with it was very early on, like when I had just moved to New York and was in my phase of like really getting into anime. You mentioned Game of Thrones. I really liked Game of Thrones at the time. And I think I was doing some really dumb anime noob Google search where I was like, anime similar to Game of Thrones. <laughs> Which like, you know, you can judge me for that, but I know you've done it. I know everybody listening to this, I know you've done sure. it. For sure, for <laughs> sure. I'm not judging you. <laughs> but other people are. <laughs> and a comic got killed came up. And so at that point I was like, oh, I maybe considered watching it. And my roommate at the time, who's the fate correspondent I mentioned in the last episode, was like, yeah, that show fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> so then I never watched it and had the, my impression of it as this edgy sort of Game of Thrones wannabe. And it seems like that's maybe partially correct. I do want to ask you, now that I've sort of stated my only thoughts about the show, <laughs> what for you constitutes, because I know you hate the idea of tons of characters getting killed off. So what makes for you a death in the series actually meaningful and worthwhile? Because I'm sure you would agree that there are cases in which character deaths can be really impactful and motivating and yeah. emotional. There are plenty of good reasons to do it. And I think what you're hinting at is that there's a very fine line between being edgy and killing characters off for shock value, just because you have no other plot ideas to go behind and having some kind of thematic or narrative purpose behind a death. I think if you want to kill off a character effectively, you need to have developed them to the point that the viewer cares enough about them and doesn't need to know more about their characterization or their backstory to understand that character, right? Either that or you're going to kill off a character who no one gives a fuck about, right? If you kill off like the hundredth red shirt in fucking Star Trek, no one gives a fuck because they're all dying anyway, right? Versus if you're going to kill off a character like... I don't want to spoil like other shows in my fucking rant here. <laughs> yeah, right? you probably shouldn't. <laughs> if we think about a very prominent romance visual novel, right, where there is a sequel season that everyone cares about and you kill off a character in that show, everyone has for the entirety of the show followed them and built up their backstory and cared about them and knows their relationships and hopes and aspirations. And their death is actually going to be significant and it's going to be sparse, right? It's something that you don't just do over and over and again. You kill off a character and you let that emotional trauma sit with the viewer. This is something that Akemika Kill did not do at all. When you have a character dying like every other episode, not only are you hitting them with shock factor, but it's also just wears off. It doesn't have any value anymore. And that's where I think killing a character, I think that's where that line is. If I care enough about a character and I feel like I fully know that character and then that character dies in a respectful way for that character, I will think it's fantastic. I mean, like, obviously I don't want to see that character go, but I think it's fantastic in the way that it's able to evoke emotion within the viewer. That is not what happened for me in Game of Thrones, and that's not what happened for me in Akamega Kill. I think Game of Thrones interesting because there are certainly lots of deaths that fall into the category that you just mentioned, where it's like, yeah, why? There are some deaths in Game of Thrones that I do think are effective, and I think the one thing I would add to your description now is that I think the cases in which maybe the character that is dying has not been developed fully, 
where it can still work is where that character has obviously developed somewhat so that you care about them. But their death is so important in the formative development of another main character in the series. And it is used within the narrative to really propel something else interesting that yeah. could only really happen that way. So I think you could also do it that way. And there are probably lots of other examples that we can think of. If, if, if it's integral to the plot, sure. If you need it for plot development, then I'll understand it. I'm not going to like it. Again, not true here. And, and I will argue in Game of Thrones, not true in like literally 90% of the show. We're like, we're going to talk about Game of Thrones spoilers now. <laughs> probably shouldn't. Do people still care about that? Has the statute of limitations passed? I don't give a fuck out here. <laughs> Honestly, though. Like, Red Wedding. The deaths in the Red Wedding, or, like, Ned Stark's death, eventually, was, like, super integral to the plot. And, like, Ned hadn't had a lot of development throughout the first book, but his death propelled the entirety of the plot later on. The deaths in the Red Wedding also propelled the plot. And those hit because that was totally unexpected. That's why the Red Wedding is like in and of itself a cultural icon right now. I'm glad you said that because Ned and the Red Wedding are the two that actually like work for me. And then the yeah. rest, I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like 90% of the other deaths, like yeah. fucking like all the deaths within the Lannister family. I can't even remember a lot of the other deaths, which I think speaks to... <laughs> yeah, like I don't or care. like most of the deaths within the Baratheon family. Like you're at the point where you're just like, these characters just getting killed off and no one gives a fuck. Yeah, there were also a lot in that very last season, which I just wiped from my memory. It doesn't yeah. exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a comic got killed. You Number can five. go watch it if you want the fucking edgelord <laughs> in your life to come out. But like, otherwise, I think it's a massive skip for me. Why is it number five? Because I've only watched two episodes of Girls Last Tour and I didn't respect myself enough to actually put that on. <laughs> but those two episodes were better, I hope. Those two episodes were by far better. I mean, the ambiance <laughs> of it. I mean, you're probably going to talk about it soon. So I'll let you take it away. We'll talk about it, and you should also give your input from the first few episodes. Yeah. All right, I'll give my number five, which is one that I am sure is on your list. I don't know where, but it's on your list. And that's season one of Devil is a Part-Timer. That is number three for me. Okay. I think that's where I would have guessed it goes. So, yeah. I don't know what this surprise is. I don't like it. You want to give the synopsis for Devil is a Part-Timer quickly before we chat a little bit more about it? Yeah, Sure. Sometimes I think that Devil is a Part-Timer may make it onto a 3 by 3 like depending on how I'm feeling for the day. It's truly one of those shows that I just enjoyed so much and has infinite rewatch potential for me. You mean it's Ravicore? It, I, I swear. <laughs> so the show starts by following Demon Lord Satan, as they say it in the show, He's fucking yelling Satan every time. Or Mao-sama. Mao-satan. Mao-satan as he attempts to brutally conquer the entire land of Ente Isla. However, his plans are thwarted by the hero Emilia, who forces him and his general Alciel to escape through a dimensional portal, vowing that they will return to take over the world at a later time. On the other side of the portal, Satan and Alciel find themselves standing in a new land, a magical land without magic, modern-day Tokyo. Considerably weaker after his battle, and with the lack of magic in the human world, Satan decides to abide his time here, and while he waits for an opportunity to return to Ente Isla, attempt to take over this new world instead. His first move in order to survive and start himself on the path to world domination is to get a job and climb the corporate ladder at McRonald's. McDonald's. McRonald's. <laughs> Trademark infringement. Disguised as a human with the name Mao, he begins to work up the hierarchy of McRonald's 
And while his loyal general takes care of chores at home as his houseman works to continue his quest for world domination. I fucking love Devil's a Part-Timer. I love Devil's a Part-Timer, hilarious slice of life. I think what it did for me is this was one of the first slice of life shows that I ever watched. So it was a genre that I had had very little actual experience with and probably was the best introduction I could have had to Slice of Life. It's still isekai, so you only took a half step. Reverse isekai. (laughs) Okay, McDonald's, McRonald's. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it was probably the best introduction I could have had to Slice of Life because it's easy to watch. It's absolutely fucking hilarious. And the major thing for me is that it cuts through many of the tropes that I had been experiencing with the isekai genre. Like I had watched so much harem isekai by this time that you just knew like, okay, overpowered male protagonist is going to come in. He's going to just easily fucking 10D brain everyone else off of the planet. He's going to get like 17 girls to follow him as he goes through these 12 episodes. And Devil's a Part-Timer did exactly none of those things. What it did instead is have a character that's super fallible, that was once super powerful and is now unable to accomplish even the most mundane things in daily life. And as he goes through those mundane things, just has hilarious interactions with what we take for granted, right? Normally, most of us think like our first part-time job is just a slog. I mean, I don't know what you thought of your fucking barista jobs. Maybe you really enjoyed them. I did. (laughs) You did? Yeah. Of course you did, because you're a fucking coffee snob. <laughs> Most of us working our first part-time jobs thinks it's an absolute slog. We're just doing it for the money. But it's hilarious to watch Mao and the rest of the cast of characters go through this and act as if every day at work is the most important day of their lives to take over the fucking world. It is genuinely incredible how well the show portrays the cast of characters and their own aspirations and dreams and the relationships between them in such a funny way. Yeah, Devil as a Part-Timer is just a genuinely really fun show and taking the concept that you just described it just uses the natural comedy that arises from all of these characters being reverse isekai into modern day japan watching mao just as you said earnestly work at a mcdonald's is super funny watching ashia act as a house husband and also like take that incredibly seriously as the first general to satan also hilarious watching Emmy just constantly be appalled at their incompetence for who she considered her main rival as this hero-villain dynamic that they have. All of these dynamic character interactions in that first season were really, really fun to watch. And to me, the show in that first season was at its best when it accentuates all of that inherent situational comedy. I've talked about this already. For me, it just loses that charm whenever it switches to the plot about Enta Isla, I find that conflict so uninteresting (laughs) with like so much like surface level, other random characters and really shallow world building that I always was just like, when are they going back to the McDonald's? No, bro, that shit was <laughs> hilarious for me, though. Like, when, when are they we getting back to the McDonald's? The neat guy, like, uh, fuck the other general. Yeah, but he becomes one of the main characters. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. His role within the slice of life setting as literally their basically child who just, like, stays at home and waits their money <laughs> is really funny. 
Yeah. I don't care about his role on the other planet. The way they introduce the characters as throwbacks to the original fucking planet Ante Isla is hilarious. And I really enjoyed that part of it. I think another thing that should definitely be shouted out is that even though it's a slice of life, it does have this redemption arc for Mal. And that was really nice to see. The way that it shows him starting to consider and like initially unconsciously start to integrate with humans. And then it becomes conscious when Emmy comes to the world. Emmy, being Amelia, who's the hero in the previous world, comes to this world and is like, what the fuck is going on? Why is he interacting with the humans normally and just not trying to subjugate everyone? As he becomes aware of that and starts to realize there are people who are not demons who have other hopes and aspirations, it was just really nice to see that. I do really like that dynamic and that development. All that is easily my favorite part of the series. It's just whenever they were like, oh, yeah, but the war is actually still happening and everybody's trying to get him back. I'm like, no. Can I just watch Emmy and Mao develop their relationship? That's what I fucking want to see. I wish it stayed along that route. Maybe a little bit of exploration of Mao and like why he was deciding to take over the world previously yeah. and like I mean, how he's fine. changed. Yeah. Should we even talk about the future seasons? I have a thing about that. Okay, you can talk about <laughs> it, but I was going to say, my God, if we can skip over those, like I wouldn't mind in the least. Yeah, I think... This show is maybe the best example we have of White Fox's ability to adapt light novels well. And that's because the show was this like relatively modest success that somehow became a strange kind of cult classic in almost a way that a lot of people really liked and were hoping would get a sequel. And that sequel did come almost a decade later. But as you've already mentioned this episode, it was moved over to Studio 3 Hertz. And holy shit, does that sequel fucking suck. <laughs> <laughs> the character designs, the animation are just a big downgrade. The stiffness of the entire adaptation doesn't allow the comedy or the fun interactions to land the way that they landed in White Fox's first season. And this is made worse by the fact that the plot now involves Mao and Emmy raising this random fucking child together and leaning a lot more into the Enta Isla conflict. I don't even think, I mean, I haven't watched the third season that is currently airing but in that second season did they even go to the mcdonald's once <laughs> i swear they barely spent any time at the yeah. fucking mcdonald's <laughs> i think the best part of the first season i agree with you was completely that mcdonald's skits where he's like trying to make the mcdonald's the mcdonald's the like best the fucking one McDonald's chain, yeah. on the planet yeah <laughs> when he's like having like the tanabata festival or whatever it is and yeah. he's like making all these niche things so he's good. fighting the guy from like fucking the kfc spinoff or whatever it was <laughs> That shit is absolutely fucking hilarious, right? Yeah. The next season, I just don't know whether... I mean, we can definitely blame part of it on 3 Hertz because it's like fucking forehead city for every character. God. But, the, but then what part of the original story and writing do you think contributed to that, right? Because as soon as they introduce the fucking child character and the story obviously revolves a lot more around the conflicts, I think it's expected the show is going to go downhill once you stop focusing on the McDonald's thing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's a combination of partly the studio adapting it and partly just the material. Yeah. Maybe for some people being what they wanted out of Devil is a Part-Timer, but just not the part that I enjoyed the most out of that first season. And it feels like a shame that what could have been a well-adapted fantasy character's do daily jobs comedy, we're instead getting sort of the opposite of that at the end of the day. So... I know you finished the second season, but not the third one. I don't know if you're planning on doing it, but... Uh, it's low <laughs> on the list. I desire to watch it at some point. Yeah. It's just, it's not a priority at all. Yeah. All right. That was my number five, basically because 
I enjoyed a lot of parts of the first season, and I just enjoy the other shows on this list more. How dare you? Give me your number four. All right. I know for a fact you have not seen this show. So around like, I think it was probably like 2016, 2015 or 2016, I watched Black Lagoon. And Black Lagoon quickly became one of my favorite anime. You've seen my profile picture on Mal. It was my profile picture on Discord until I saw the fucking uh, Hideaki <laughs> Kojima picture at the fucking dentist, which was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and so Black Lagoon, when I watched that show, just hit every single thing that I love about anime. It's just an action-oriented show with great characters. It was dark. It was a little edgy. It had great character development. And what it did for its characters is something that I look forward to in almost every anime I watch with incredible development of a character going from this naive, normal work person to becoming someone who's now in the seedy underbelly of the world. And when I finished that show, I was left with such a huge hole, right? We've talked about like this concept of the hole when I finish things like Violet Evergarden or finish things like fucking Sword Art Online. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking with that one. Are you sure? A little bit. <laughs> and when I finished Black Lagoon, I had that same experience that you just talked about where I went online and I was like, shows related to Black Lagoon, right? <laughs> And the way I did it back in the day is I used to use Mal not as a place where I could create my anime list, but where I could get related anime. I wasn't really following Reddit forums, and I didn't really have any friends personally to talk to this about, which is sad. Look at how times have changed. Yeah. How, how Look at changed. the glow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On Mal, you always have that related anime yeah. section. And I think maybe still the most related anime to Black Lagoon was a show called Jormungand. And the thing is, Jormungand is like a one-to-one -one replica of Black Lagoon in just a synopsis because, again, it's a show about the seedy underbelly of smuggling with mercenaries and arms dealers. And as soon as I saw that, I immediately was like, fuck yes, I'm throwing this on. And it was definitely worth it. So what is Jormungand about? The way the show starts is we meet Coco Hekmatyar, who's an arms dealer with a somewhat ironic goal of world peace that she hopes to accomplish through mutually assured destruction. Okay, maybe not the way I do it, but it is what it is. To protect her as she acquires and distributes her weapons shipments, Coco hires a team of bodyguards whose most recent addition is a child soldier by the name of Jonah. The show follows Coco, Jonah, and her team of mercenaries as they do business and evade the authorities while exploring the psychological impact their trade and its consequences have on each character. So the first thing I want to say about this show is that the show is brutal. It is filled with what I've described White Fox somehow excels at, which is action and violence and gore and showing you the dark psychological consequences of all of those. Instead of glorifying those moments, like most other battle shonen do, Jormungand does a great job at highlighting the amount of trauma, the baggage that each character has to live with as a result of the way that they live their lives and make their money. It has a diverse cast of characters that 
each has a dark and traumatic past, and these characters absolutely make the show for me. Just starting off with the synopsis saying that one of the main protagonists is a child soldier is in and of itself just terrifying, right? Like child soldiers have probably the worst life that I can possibly imagine. It's someone that who's been forced into a lifetime of war and fear. And the way that it portrays Jonah, who is this clearly traumatized, expressionless child who wishes nothing more than to rid the world of arms dealers, who now falls prey to an arms dealer and now has to protect her as she goes through this life trying to create world peace through dealing arms is so ironic and hypocritical. And the way the show actually explores that is just fantastic. The reason that this is number four for me, as opposed to higher on this list, given the way that I'm talking about it. I thought it would be higher, actually. Is that there is a major flaw, and that's that the characters aren't as flushed out as I wanted them to be. Coco and Jonah, for everything that I loved about them, still deserved a lot more characterization, considering that they're main protagonists. And instead, the show spent a little too much time focusing on the shonen aspect of it. I don't actually know if this is a shonen or a seinen, but I'm going to say probably a shonen. It spent a little too much time focusing on the action and the wider cast of characters than just focusing really in on Coco and Jonah and showing you what every single one of these interactions and near-death experiences has on their psyche. And so I didn't want to put it higher on this list, even though I loved the show for what it was. It's actually a sign-in, not to just undermine you. but Okay. <laughs> so I want to ask, because you said that you got this recommendation from Black Lagoon and the plots are very similar. I assume you prefer Black Lagoon, but can you highlight for me a little bit of why you prefer Black Lagoon to Yormagon? It's exactly what I just described because the characters in Black Lagoon are just so much more flushed out. Yeah. Rock in particular, his character trajectory is, I think aside from Violet and Violet Evergarden, my favorite character trajectory of all time in anime. I mean, the thing with Violet, is that she is a character who is essentially a blank slate, right? A blank slate that is accumulating emotions and experiences as she goes about her task writing letters. In much the same way, Rock is a blank slate. He's just a normal salaryman who's living in Japan, who then is thrust into this dark world as he falls prey to a group of smugglers that he then becomes inducted into. And the world that he falls into, actually, I think it's not Japan. I think it's actually in the Philippines. It's like supposed to be modeled on like Manila, I think, like or something like that or Jakarta. I don't know, whatever. But the world that he falls into is just extremely dark and filled with violence, something that most people don't interact with on a daily basis. And as he goes through that, he becomes harder. He becomes more inhumane. He becomes more unempathetic. And seeing how his character trajectory compares to the people around him who are already at that level of just peak unempathy and peak trauma and seeing him go initially from bringing light to this group, bringing some level of hope that they could potentially rise out of this seedy underbelly, and then he gets dragged into it, it's just incredible. I really wish Yormungad had done something similar and given hope to its characters, characters like Jonah. 
it just, it never did. We just never got to the point where there was a good enough character trajectory for me to say that they had any resolution to their characters. Yeah, we were just talking before this, which I think we also mentioned in the last episode about setting up like a recommendations list for each other to at least work our way through some of our favorite series for each of us. And that doesn't really make any sense because you don't have time to watch anime. So you're just not going to watch anything that I put on there. Please, if you force me to do it, I will. (laughs) But I imagine Black Lagoon will be near the top of that list. And it is a show that I do really want to watch. So I think I would watch that much before I ever watch Jormungand, I think. It just seems like generally the slightly better show. But I know you really like Jormungand as well. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Jormungand. I think Black Lagoon probably number one on the list if I made it for you. And also, like, it does have an overarching plot, I'd say, but it's a little more slice of lifey. It has, like, two or three episode plots that are then, like, disconnected, but they're joined together by the character development. And so I think you'd really like it for that respect. The characters and the voice acting are just also fucking amazing. There are just some scenes within Black Lagoon that I can just remember so vividly for the emotional impact they have on you. I fucking love that show. That is definitely on my three by three. I'm really excited to watch that for sure. Yeah. Also, Revy, great character design. I didn't even talk about Revy. Don't get me started. <laughs> the section isn't about Black Lagoon. <laughs> Just to remind you. All right. Your Begun was your number four. So now I will give my number four, which is ReZero. It's my number one. <laughs> I'm not. You're taking the piss. That's my number one. No, it's not. I swear to God, it's my number one. You put ReZero <laughs> above Steins Gate? I don't believe you. I did. I did put ReZero How is that possible? Uh, so the reason... Like, I get it's an isekai, and I get that we both have reservations about it, whatever. It's a very good isekai generally, so I can understand why you'd like it. But you've talked so many times negatively about a lot of aspects of ReZero. Yeah. I genuinely do not understand. <laughs> did you go, like, rewatch all of ReZero and discover, like, a hidden love for Amelia? Like, I... <laughs> I broke them. Absolutely. I, broke I am them. so shocked right now. <laughs> I think the reason ReZero is above Steins Gate for me is purely How? because of enjoyment factor. <laughs> How? How is that possible? All right. We did it, team. We broke you. How is that possible? The more I think about it, the more I don't understand it. <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about whether I should put Steins Gate or ReZero as number one for this. And if you look at my mouth, Steinsgate still has a higher rating than ReZero. I think in every critical respect, it's the best show that White Fox has made. The only problem with ReZero, sorry, with uh, Steinsgate for me is that it's a slow burn. It is a very slow burn. And the enjoyment factor for me was still less than ReZero, considering ReZero hits a lot of the enjoyment factor criteria that I have with it being an isekai, with it being a fantasy, with it having like an interesting power dynamic with the time travel system, with it having a large diverse cast of characters, and with having a main character that I have a love-hate relationship with, but that the show actually tries to make you have a love-hate relationship with. I'm so shocked right now. (laughs) I don't even know what to say. It's just okay. You know, we've been making this podcast for like two plus years now. And I feel like I have a pretty good handle on you as a person and also what you like in anime and your feelings about anime. And so when something happens where you don't like something as much as I thought you would, like what happened with 
Hibika Euphonium and we disagree. That happens, but that's like fine. I thought you might have liked <laughs> something and you don't. And that's surprising and that's unfortunate, but that's okay. We you disagree and that's fine. This is actually even more shocking than any of those instances <laughs> because not only do I have this like prior over how much you liked certain things about Steinsgate, I just have evidence. I feel like I need to pull up the receipts now of things you have said about ReZero in the past and like all the problems you have with it that nowhere in my mind would it have been even conceivable that you would prefer ReZero to Steinsgate. Like even when the ReZero season three announcement got put up, you were like, oh yeah, I think you're more excited for this than I am. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if that's true, but I feel like I'm the one who's talked more positively about ReZero in the past. How is that possible? <laughs> I think I've actually destroyed you. My brain has never been more confused <laughs> throughout the run of this podcast. So, so you've never done a head-to-head -head comparison. There's no reason we would ever have done a head-to-head -head comparison between ReZero and Steinsgate, if not for this one instance. It's so crazy. <laughs> ReZero is not my favorite isekai, right? It's not even close to my favorite isekai because we have Mushoku Tensei and Log Horizon, etc. But... In terms of everything that it did, in terms of its production value, in terms of its story, in terms of its music, in terms of the dark fantasy aspect of it, how psychologically traumatizing it is, I think it does so many of those things so well, even though I fucking hate Subaru, and I fucking hate Amelia, and I fucking hate some of the choices that Subaru makes. But even in spite of those things, I think that what the show does is fantastic for Subaru's character development. And I think that that is the main reason I like ReZero. It's just like, I don't even disagree with any of that. But like any time in the future we have to write a favorites list, I'm never putting Steinsgate for you again. I literally wrote right here, Steinsgate is critically the best show that White Fox has made and in every way better than ReZero except for entertainment factor. That's crazy. All right, let's just talk about ReZero. Maybe I'll recover throughout the run of this conversation. <laughs> Synopsis, uh, what the fuck is ReZero about? A guy who suffers a lot. <laughs> I'm not even upset. I'm just so confused. Do you understand? You understand why I like it more though. I understand. If you had said this to me without me having other context, I'd be like, oh yeah, you love Isekai. That makes sense. You recognize Steinsgate is better. You like all these things more about enjoying ReZero. All that makes sense. But I have literally written the favorites list for you. <laughs> Steinsgate is still on my favorites list. ReZero has never been in the conversation to be on your Because it's not a joint favorite, right? It's not like... I wouldn't put Mushoku Tensei in our favorites list, right? Because, oh. like, yeah, it's one of my favorite shows, but would you ever even consider it in your fucking top 100 realm? Like, probably not. Anyways, I don't know. All right. ReZero. Subaru Natsuki is a neat who is suddenly summoned from his everyday life to a fantasy-like world. Not long after his arrival, he is attacked by so some you're thugs. You're ready to just absolutely end it right now. <laughs> I'm so close. <laughs> He's attacked by some thugs and beaten to a pulp until he is saved by a mysterious beauty named Satella who is in pursuit of a stolen insignia. In order to thank her, Subaru offers to help in her search, finding the insignia's location that very same night. Just minutes after locating it, however, Subaru and Satella are brutally murdered, but Subaru immediately reawakens to a familiar scene, again confronted by the thugs and meeting Satella all over again. After another death and revival, Satella is now somehow Amelia, and she is immediately offended by being called the name Satella, which she says is the name of the quote-unquote jealous witch. 
Despite this, Subaru vows to use his power to turn back time after death, in which he carries the memories of what happened that are forgotten by everyone else to protect Emilia and help her become appointed as the next queen of this new world. All right, you want to start since apparently it's your favorite fucking series of all time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) I said that I have a love-hate relationship with a lot of Free Zero. It is critically not the best show that White Fox has made, for sure. But there are so many things that just tick off boxes that I just enjoy so much, including the fact that it's a dark fantasy. It has an incredible depiction of a character's descent into madness as Subaru dies over and over and over and realizes the futility of his actions and has to go through dying to just even have a chance of saving characters that he loves. If you think about how psychologically traumatic that would be, I think the show explores that very well. And I think that's why I love this show so much. Sure, Steinsgate also does that very, very well. I just enjoyed the narrative and that psychological exploration here a little bit more because it's couched within a genre that I really enjoy. It has a complex narrative. The complexity that it gives to the revivability, the way that it isn't just like character revive starts from scratch again without any memory, but instead he starts again with all of the baggage that he's been carrying before and has to go through increasingly frantic, increasingly anxious attempts to save the characters around him. It's so much fun to watch. It's kind of like nail-biting to watch. It induces anxiety within the viewer too. And the way that it's able to do that is just incredible. The soundtrack is amazing. I have so many of the songs in the soundtrack saved. The amount of value that White Fox brings to this production, you know, it talks about how every episode feels like a full episode. It feels long because it's 29 minutes long. It just showcases, I think, the way that anime should be produced. If you're not the most excited person about ReZero Season 3 after this episode, I swear to fucking God, (laughs) you're never going to hear the end of it. All right, what do I hate about this show? (laughs) Uh, Subaru. I fucking hate Subaru. I do not think that Subaru is a character that I would ever enjoy watching. But as we've said in the past, and I think as you've argued in the past, that that is... Something that the show does on purpose. It is partially a point of the show to make you hate Subaru. I have talked at length about how much I fucking hate when he like tries to get Amelia to, (laughs) you're also shaking your head, tries to get Amelia to like fall in love with him and see him as her hero in moments like when they're in the royal chambers and he's like, Amelia, I got this team. That's the worst fucking scene in season one and perfectly exemplifies how cringy he is because she's literally like, hey, there's a lot of important people here. Don't do anything crazy. Then he's like, you know what? I'm going to do something crazy. And he just fucking like confesses his devotion to her in front of everybody. It's so fucking embarrassing. But you're right. Yeah, the show does it on purpose. And to make a character that cringe, like, it makes sense because, he, again, he's just a normal kid, right? He's a normal kid endowed with these fucking super normal, supernatural powers and knows that he always has the opportunity to go back in time to reverse anything that he's done as long as he dies. And with that ability, I mean, not only would most people just have a fucking, like, 
power crisis where they're like, holy shit, I can do anything I want and then just reverse time. That's like a little fucking scary. And it shows that really well in a way that I think most people have mixed feelings on, but those mixed feelings are generated for a purpose. And not many shows I've seen before I can say that about. I mean, to defend Subaru a little bit, at least in the context of the show, there are a lot of isekai protagonists who, in my opinion, fall into worse tropes where they're not cringy, but they're like, oh, you're actually like kind of a bad person or you're just- Oh, I totally agree. Or like all those things. Subaru is not- ever portrayed to be a bad person. He doesn't fall into the trope of being overly horny, as far as I can remember, at least. He's just in love with the first girl that helps him because he's a fucking shut-in in in the real world. And that is just cringy to watch, but it at least doesn't feel problematic in any way. And he does experience growth through the entirety of the series. I think kind of the capstone of that or the most memorable moment of that is episode four of season two, where they have that one episode where he's transported back to the real world and you explore the relationship he had with his parents and what kind of life he lived, which we actually never got the backstory for. And for a lot of people, that was, I think, a pretty emotional moment, kind of realizing how far he's come and what things he really struggled with in the real world. So to defend Subaru a little bit, it's obviously very cringe and frustrating to watch him, but it feels like it comes from a more genuine place than other isekai protagonists. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think any day you'd compare someone like Subaru versus Rudius or Rudy from yeah. Mushoku Tensei, everyone would agree that Subaru is a character that you would get behind 100% more than Rudius, right? Other parts of the show that I really hated, and this is something I can't defend, Emilia's characterization is just not good. Yeah. Emilia has had very little backstory so far. It's just kind of like the damsel in distress for most of the show. Actually, I assume a lot more is coming from her because she's kind of one of the main characters, but you haven't actually seen the two OVA movies, have you? No. I've seen both of them, which might surprise you. (laughs) That is surprising to me. (laughs) And they actually do do a little bit more about Amelia that ties into some of the stuff in season two. So there's a little bit. She's gotten more backstory in season two by far. than. But there's a lot lacking. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But her character overall is like a character that should be super powerful, but it just often comes off as that damsel in distress, mainly because we're also looking at this from Subaru's point of view, and he is trying his utmost to kind of show off to her and prevent her from having to use her powers or abilities to do anything. And I think that that is one major flaw within the show. The other thing is the dialogue sometimes is cringy as fuck. And (laughs) the scene in the cave where... he kisses her is probably one of the most fucking cringeworthy moments in the entire show. I will defend that. I know you're going to defend it. I know you're going to defend it. I hated watching that and it made me super uncomfortable, but also like Subaru is cringy and uncomfortable. So obviously, spoilers, I guess, for season two of ReZero, his confession and the kiss is also going to be fucking awkward and uncomfortable. You know, it makes sense. I get it. I get it. It's tied very closely into Subaru as a character. But when I was watching the show, watch. I'm just like <laughs> sitting the fucking eyes closed, like fucking rolling back in my head, like listening to him talk to Amelia sometimes. Yeah. All right. I guess I should talk a little bit of sort of my general thoughts beyond what we just said about ReZero. And I think despite my noted disdain for Isekai as a genre, ReZero- How dare you? <laughs> it's just true. ReZero, along with Kotosuba, are definitely the Isekai that I have watched the most of between- two full two core seasons that I've watched and the side story movies, which I just mentioned, as well as the fact that I'm probably going to watch season three next year. So 
I've seen a lot of ReZero. Is that even true? You've seen that much short online. I've only seen the first season and a half or two of Sora Online, so a little bit less. That's like 26 episodes. Yeah, and I've watched... And the movie. And I've watched like 48 of ReZero. I forgot I watched the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, not the point. And ReZero does still fall into a lot of trends that I dislike and are prevalent in the genre. I don't really connect to the self-insert. We talked about Super being insufferable. We talked about some of the quality of the dialogue. And some of the character development, like for Subaru, we mentioned, is pretty good. A lot of the writing, character development outside of that, I think, could be better. But all of that being said, I still think ReZero is more interesting than a lot of its genre counterparts because it does at least play with that isekai formula by presenting some slightly more complex and interesting ideas. The world has a really deep lore that allows for people that want to to dive super deeply into it. I've done a tiny bit of that, but not as much as people who are big fans of the series. But there is a lot there that you could read about and really get invested in, which I always think is cool for a series. The time loop and reincarnation structure is something that I'm always drawn to and I think is used pretty effectively here. And as you mentioned, there's a wide cast of characters that are pretty compelling. A lot of isekai have very cookie cutter, all look the same characters and ReZero definitely makes its cast stand out in a lot of interesting ways. And that sort of mixed feeling extends to the seasons as well. I found the first to be you're probably not going to agree with this, less enjoyable to the second. The first season just has a lot of meandering and can be a little bit edgy at times with, I think, the bulk of the cringe Subaru moments that are in the series, as well as a heavy focus on Rem's interest in Subaru, which I didn't really care about, although I like Amelia. 10 out of 10 meme, that's Damn, fucking funny. bro. I'm a crucial boy. <laughs> and Guess as this antagonist that just really rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. Like, I really fucking hated that guy in season one. <laughs> season two felt a lot more contained within one setting, which gave some backstory to some of the cast members and built up the lore of the witches. As I have said on this podcast, I fucking love Echidna. I'm such an Echidna. I don't know fan. why. I just, <laughs> I never understood what made you Do I need a so reason? <laughs> She's like one of those characters reason? that has like almost no fucking characterization. She doesn't matter. <laughs> She's a cute, mysterious witch. And I like that. <laughs> I respect the move. I was going to say just in general that I lie somewhere in the middle on ReZero where I don't feel like it's a masterpiece of Isekai that I think a lot of its biggest fans are. But I think it's at least a fantasy adventure that takes some risks in the way it's set up and does much more interesting things than a lot of other Isekai do. I think the one thing for me, I mean, obviously, we've already talked about how I disagree with you about season one and season two. I really do enjoy the narrative structure. I wonder what the consensus on that is. I've never gotten a feel for if it's like split or if people like fans. It's hard to tell because anytime a sequel season comes out, everyone rates it higher if they actually like the show. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't tell from ratings, but sometimes you get a sense from people talking about it, but I don't actually have a good sense. Yeah, I don't know. Season two is also a lot more complex with the time loop structure. Yeah. Like season one is like, okay, like I understand we're in like very yeah. narrow cycled time loops and, yeah. and season two is like, what the fuck is going on? There is a lot of lore bullshit happening in season yeah. two. <laughs> the one thing I'll say about ReZero as opposed to a lot of other isekai is that I distinctly found it as not self-insert. It is very, very clear that Subaru, even though he's a normal person transported to this fantasy world, does not have the classic power dynamic 
and faces unique struggles in a way that most people would not be able to say, I want to be in Subaru's position, right? I think many of us would be like, fuck yeah, like I'd love to be in Kirito's position or like I'd love to be in like some people would say Rudius's position, which is questionable. But I don't think many people would be like, man, I'd love to be in Subaru's position or at least personally, I wouldn't. Yeah, I guess people relate to him more so. Yeah, he's very relatable. He's not self-insert. All right, you hyped for season three of ReZero? I'm pretty excited. It's going to be your anime of the year <laughs> next year. <laughs> See, I, I feel like we flipped a little bit, right? It's like I'm speaking way more highly of ReZero here because I did enjoy it so much, but I often compare it to other isekai. Whereas you are like, man, it's my fucking like, favorite isekai, but that doesn't have a high bar for you. And now yeah. you're like, man, I'm not looking forward to season three as much as no, you now. No, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's a show I'm mixed on and I don't like as much as people like you and generally people who like a lot of isekai. But I still like it with its flaws. So I am going to watch the third season. I am excited for that. It's just everything on this list I like more. That's fair. All right. Your number three was Devil's a Part-Timer. Yeah. So... I'll give my number three, which is Girls' Last Tour. Damn, ReZero is number four for you? Fuck. Yeah. It's a pretty easy four, too, I think. Interesting. Interesting. I did not have Girls' Last Tour on mine because I only watched two episodes. But I want your opinion on those two episodes, at least, once I get through this. So what is Girls' Last Tour about? So amid the desolate remains of a once-thriving city, the only sound that can be heard is that of a rumbling motorbike. Its riders, Chito and Yuri, are the last survivors of a war, spending their days scavenging old military sites for food and parts and speculating about the nature of the old world. The two girls occasionally struggle with the looming solitude, but they rely on each other to share the weight of being among the last humans alive. Between Yuri's clumsy excitement and Chito's calm composure, their dark days are brightened with things like shooting practice, new books that they find, and snowball fights in barren landscapes and deserted buildings. Okay, now that we've gotten all the isekai off my list, we can finally get to the three series that cemented White Fox as a great studio in my mind. Fuck you. (laughs) That was just bait. (laughs) The first of these is Girls' Last Tour, which might appear at first glance to be a strange combination of -of slice-of-life moe, existential philosophy, and the apocalypse. But it's precisely its unique premise that makes Girls' Last Tour stand out so much for me. The show presents a thoughtful critique about war and technological advancements, having repeatedly left their devastating mark on humanity to the point that society has completely destroyed itself. But despite what may seem like that initial nihilism, Girls' Last Tour presents an overpowering optimism and gratitude for life through its two main characters. Chito and Yuri complement each other perfectly, with the former being the duo's brain and the latter being more spontaneous and energetic. Their quest to find meaning and hope even in this bleak and dying world is ultimately uplifting. The show achieves that by balancing being pensive in that it asks intentionally open-ended questions about the meaning of life, but never dwelling on each of these questions for too long, instead swiftly appreciating the simplicity of the here and now that Chito and Yuri are experiencing with each other. So I've also been thinking a lot about, in addition to what I just mentioned, and I think about that all the time. (laughs) In addition to kind of what I just mentioned and the philosophical, pensive nature of Girls' Last Tour, I've been thinking a bit about the use of moe in Girls' Last Tour. and As one does, just sitting on the toilet. Yeah, I do think of that. (laughs) What do I think about moe in Girls' Last Tour? Give me a second. I'm getting somewhere. I'm going somewhere with this. (laughs) He's cooking, guys. I'm cooking. (laughs) I haven't taken it out of the oven yet. 
<laughs> and for people that haven't seen anything from Girls Last Tour, if you go look it up, you'll see the character designs are these moe blobs that you might think of. And that obviously is contrasted with the rest of the synopsis that I've just given. And that exact contrast has led me to think about how it uses moe in comparison with something like Made in Abyss. And we did a whole deep dive of Made in Abyss. We talked about Made in Abyss lots of times, even when the second season came out. I love Made in Abyss a lot. I think it had some caveats, but it's a really incredible fantasy series. But its use of Moe, specifically in its character designs, is really, at least in my opinion, in the service of accentuating the darkness of the fantasy world in comparison with those designs. And honestly, for a lot of shock factor that comes when things happen to certain characters that you might just not expect from a first glance at them. And Girls Last Tour does make use of this moe darkness contrast as well, because obviously you have all of these philosophical topics getting explored and the apocalypse combined with these designs. But I feel like there's a little bit more of a connection of that contrast to its central themes where the use of moe actually means something because the levity and the pensiveness of its optimism is, I think, really accentuated by the appearance of its characters. You wouldn't be able to have such an overly optimistic message within the setting of this world, or you would be able to, but one way to accomplish getting that thematic optimism across is by actually doing this contrast. So I think there is a little bit more of a purposeful use of Moe in the show that I don't see as much in Made in Abyss, I guess I would say. You're going to ask me what I think about these two episodes? Yeah, I would love to know. All right. Yeah, so I started watching Girls Last Tour, uh, I think a few months ago, and I put it aside after two episodes because you need to be in a specific mood to watch this show. And I think that this is a very, very ambiance-driven show, very, very atmospheric show. I think the way they described it is really nice, which is pensive. And I think to watch the show, you need to be in a state of mind to not only watch A Slice of Life with Moe, but to watch like a, a show that I found a little bit psychological and a little bit, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but maybe a little bit draining too, right? Like you're putting a lot of thought into every single episode. Definitely you're gives you stuff to chew acutely. on. Yeah. yeah. And I just wasn't in the right state of mind for that at the time. I really do look forward to watching it eventually again. It really reminded me a lot of Mushishi actually when I watched it for the first time. It's a good comparison, yeah. In the sense that, again, the way that most people and we've described Mushishi in the past is this atmosphere. It's atmospheric. And you are spending a lot of time just watching a character explore, or in this case, Girls Estor, a set of characters explore this desolate world. And you're spending a lot of time in silence with either no music or just ambient music in the background, very little dialogue. And I liked that part of Girls' S Tour a lot. It's very interesting to see the world being built to try, try and figure out what happened to this world and what these girls are going to do and what purpose they have in life besides just surviving. I enjoyed all those aspects of Girls' S Tour. The animation is really nice for what it is. I don't like the Moe style personally, but that's just me. I think that the world is nice. The backgrounds are incredible. The way that the show portrays the desolation of the world is really, really nice. The music is fantastic. So all of the elements are there. It's just a show that I've put off to watch at a later time. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it's very ambiance-driven at 100%. It's mainly about these sort of philosophical musings about what is our purpose when society has collapsed because of war, and that's just a really compelling thing to explore in this way. 
two other really quick things I wanted to mention. One is I actually just picked up the physical volumes for Girls Last Tour. High, high recommend for reading them. The anime adaptation is really great. It'll give you all you need to know. But the art style for the manga is also incredible and with a lot of really nice full-page spreads and things like that. So if you're into manga, that's definitely one I would recommend reading. And every time I mention the show, this is the second thing, I need to also recommend the opening because is actually sung by the VAs for Chito and Yuri. And it has the two girls dancing, which as we talked about many times, always great, with a dab and a moonwalk included. Oh, fuck. I forgot about that. Yeah. You should just go watch it. <laughs> it's fucking great. That was a banger. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> All right. That's it about Girls Last Tour. It's my number three because I absolutely adore the show. I just like the other two out here better. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you put this above ReZero? I can't wrap my head around the fact that you're like a ReZero stand now. That just you were. It's never not now. <laughs> it's I've always been a fucking Isekai stand. Not in my head. Not in my head. Well, Isekai stand, yes, but not ReZero specifically. ReZero is just one of the best Isekai. I mean, I'd say it's probably like top five. I don't disagree with that. I just all right. Anyways, that was my number three. Give me your number two. I already know it's Steins Gate. I don't know how that's number two. Let me give the synopsis for Steins Gate. <laughs> Obviously, Steins Gate is my fucking number one. It is. One of my top five anime of all time. He's just taking it solo, guys. And until this day, I thought it was one of your top five anime of all it time. It is one of no, my top, like, 20 anime. I don't understand how it's one of your top anime, but it doesn't make your top five list for one studio. I mean, I do. You just explained it, like, eight times. But it's still, like, it hasn't sunk in. All right. What is Steins Gate about if you haven't seen it? Eccentric scientist Rintaro Okabe runs the Future Gadget Laboratory along with his ditzy but well-meaning friend Mayuri and his computer hacker roommate Daru. Despite claims of grandeur and innovation, the only gadget that the lab has actually created is a microwave that has the power to turn bananas into green goo. Not very useful. Would not get a nature paper out of that. That was a very specific joke. However, when Okabe decides to attend neuroscientist Makise Kurisu's conference on time travel we're also neuroscientists but i don't think we're ever going to give a talk on time travel. oh you don't know that man <laughs> I'm pretty don't sure. fucking cancel me out already i could do that after attending this conference okabe experiences a series of strange events that lead him to believe that the microwave they invented can send messages back into the past dabbling with this newfound invention Okabe and his friends eventually attract the attention of a mysterious organization named CERN and put themselves in ever-present danger. As Okabe works to mitigate the damage his invention has caused, he must now fight a battle to save his loved ones and maintain his degrading sanity. Okay, so we've already done an entire deep dive episode on Steinsgate, breaking down the time travel mechanics as well as the entirety of the plot and its characters. If you're a big Steinsgate fan, I'm just self-plugging that you should go check that out. And if you've listened to that, I think it's no surprise that this would be number one on my list. And I would have said our list, but now I have to change that on the spot. <laughs> As I already mentioned, Science Gate is one of my favorite anime of all time. and is the anime that really launched my obsession with the medium. I think I've talked about that, but I went through this phase right after graduating college where I started being like, oh, maybe I'll watch anime a little bit more regularly. And I got obsessed with Science Gate, and that's really what created my perpetual weavedom that hasn't stopped since. <laughs> the series has some of the most memorable characters in anime, with Okabe being probably my favorite Mamoru Miyano role and Kurisu being one of my favorite female main characters, or at least co-main characters. 
I'm a sucker for time travel, and Steinsgate might be the best example of using time travel effectively across not just anime, but a lot of media in general. Not only do the rules of the world lines make perfect sense in a coherent way that doesn't create a lot of plot holes, but they serve as a central tension and narrative force of the show that propel the character development and the emotional climax where Okabe has to choose. Spoilers for Science Gate, just skip ahead like 10 seconds if you don't want to be spoiled, between saving Kurisu or Mayuri and the global consequences of either of those choices. Steins Gate is honestly, in my eyes, a masterpiece and is that rare case where all of the plot threads tie together and deliver one of the most satisfying conclusions I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing in anime. Damn, bro, you sound like you jerk off to this show. <laughs> we already did that in the deep dive. I have a few caveats and some thoughts about the other Steins Gate entries, which I know you haven't seen. Do you want to say maybe what you like about your number two on this list? Yeah, it's just not as good as your zero. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I think Steins Gate is nearly perfect in every way, from the story to the characters, the voice acting to the soundtrack. It is genuinely one of the best entries within anime, period. It's not hard to see why this is one of the most well-known and beloved shows in the anime space. And for many people from our generation in their later 20s or older, I think that many people feel this sense of nostalgia for this show. And I think it's because many people who started watching anime around this time in the late 2000s or early 2010s associate this with kind of like a golden age of getting into anime along with other shows like Haruhi and Death Note and Full Metal Alchemist. Shows that bring us back to when we started watching anime and kind of when we still have this wonder, still I sound like I'm fucking salty as fuck, <laughs> still had this like wonder around. Anime, anime. industry is not the same anymore, man. <laughs> yeah, they don't make them like though. they used to. <laughs> fucking boomer take, but whatever. <laughs> I truly think like Steinsgate, when I think back on it, when I first watched it, was this glorified period for me where I was voraciously consuming anime, just watching Steinsgate so much stuff. blew my brains out the first yeah. time I watched it, like absolutely mind fucked me. And truly, like when I talk about this with other anime fans, this is unanimously one of people's most favorite shows. And it's because it does, as I said, Everything almost to a degree of perfection that you rarely see otherwise. I have never met someone, and I'm going to wait till someone on the Discord proves me wrong, that doesn't (laughs) like this show. There's someone out there. There's always a hater out there. There's always a hater out there. As I said, I thought deeply about which one to put number one on this list. Not deeply enough. I love Steinsgate. I still think it's probably like top 20 shows for me. It's still rated on Mal for me as within my like top 20 shows. The only thing I would say that is hard for some people to get into this show, and maybe that's because these people aren't vocal in the community because they just don't watch it, is that it is a slow burn initially. You have to get through quite a few episodes to start seeing what's actually going on to start understanding where the plot's going to take you. The first episode is fantastic at introducing the plot and at giving you the hint at the story that's going to come, especially with the cell phone and with the microwave and CERN, etc. But you have to watch quite a bit for it to actually take off. As the only qualm I have for this show, that is not a lot. I think this is a must-watch certified fucking amazing show that everyone should watch. Yeah, so maybe since you mentioned the 
slow burn, it's a good time to get into my caveats. And that's the first one, which is that a lot of people say that the first, I guess, almost half of the series is, I don't remember exactly the episode count, is slow. And basically just tell people sort of what you just said. Stick with it until shit really hits the fan in the latter half. Then it completely picks up and it'll all be worth it. And I totally see where people are coming from. And I get that a lot of people feel that way. I would argue, and I would hope you'd agree with this, that the first half, at least for me, isn't something to endure, but is pretty much necessary for Steinsgate to function. Spending some quote-unquote slower episodes with the cast makes the rest of the series hit hard, i.e. knowing what Okabe is normally like and seeing that contrast with his mental instability, the reveal of why Maria and Okabe mean so much to each other, Kurisu's absence, and all those episodes spent more lightheartedly toying with time travel in the lab set up what Okabe then has to unravel later on in the series. And I think that Skynsgate just wouldn't work if you like tried to cut out that part of it. The second are actual caveats, which are that some parts of the series have definitely not aged well, that I'm sure, even at the time when I watched it, I was like, Ugh. and I think if I rewatched it now, I'd be even more like off put by them, which are one, Daru has a lot of like borderline sexual harassment stuff on like various occasions. And I think even more, unfortunately, the treatment of Ruka as a trans character is really bad. There's a whole plot line where, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember kind of just while like looking into some of this stuff, where his mother eating more vegetables will allow him to be born female, which is just like, that's not how that works. <laughs> like, that's like a serious plot line in the show that actually has consequences. And you're kind of like, wait, <laughs> why? So... I feel like I do have to give fair warning about both of those things. But otherwise, as you said, the series is basically perfect. To just quickly complete the section, uh, some thoughts on the other Steinsgate entries, which I know you haven't seen. Open the Missing Link and Steinsgate Zero. These together tell the story of what happened after the first Okabe failed to save Kurisu until the time he figured out how to tell his past self to find the Steinsgate world line. The actual episode is great. It serves as a prequel to Zero, but it feels very connected to the main story since we've seen the successful quote-unquote version of that episode. Zero itself as a series, I enjoyed. I don't think it ever reaches the heights of the original, and we have a lot of time with pretty depressed Okabe, which is understandable, but just like not as much fun to watch for that many episodes. It does complete the narrative, so that's good, and it has some nice moments like Okabe actually figuring out that final solution that he sends to himself and returning to his baseline character. So I think if you're a fan of Steinsgate, it's definitely worth watching. It's just you should go in with no expectations that it's going to be as good as the first series was because I think that's pretty impossible to recreate, honestly. And then the movie Load Region of Deja Vu is pretty much this epilogue to the series where Okabe starts having side effects from all of his time travel in the series. It's kind of a strange entry in that it breaks some of the rules of the Steinsgate world that were so tightly written in the original. So that's a definite negative. But in exchange for that, we get to see Kurisu as the main character solving the issue within the movie and the main plot. And we get some really good development for Kurisu and Okabe's relationship, which is actually genuinely enjoyable to see since we're so invested in those characters. She does give Okabe's younger self his first kiss. That's fucking weird, and we just pretend that that never happened. <laughs> but I also think that if you're going in kind of with the right expectations, the movie is also an enjoyable watch and worth it if you like Stein's Game. You ever going to watch those? Honestly, I never think about them. I think it's really unlikely considering that... I love the original 
so much for what it is that I don't see a real reason to watch Zero or to watch the other OVAs or things like that. I'll watch it, I guess, if I feel like I am in the mood for it and there's nothing else I want to watch, but there's, again, no pressing need for me to watch it. Maybe I'll read the visual novels then. Play the visual Unlikely. <laughs> All right, so somehow, in some world, that was your number two. So I guess I will give my number two, which is the last series we're going to talk about, and my number two is Katana Gatari. I think you expected that also. I did expect that. So Katana Gatari. In an Edo-era Japan filled with a variety of sword fighting styles, Shichika Yasura practices Kyotoryu, which is a technique in which the user's body is wielded as a blade. Shichika lives quietly in exile with his sister Nanami as the head of the Kyotoryu school until one day the wildly ambitious strategist Togame barges into their lives. Togami requests that Shichika help her in her mission to collect 12 unique swords known as the Deviant Blades for the Shogunate. Shichika accepts despite being more interested in Togame herself than the politics of her goals, and the two set out on a journey against the wielders of these legendary weapons and other power-hungry entities. Okay, so first of all, I feel like I need to say this up front it's to part get of the, the confusion series, out of the right? way. It's not part of the Gatari series. <laughs> it was written by Nisiriusen, the original novel was. It ends in Gatari. It has nothing to do with Monogatari at all. I feel like that is confusing for people. Uh, you say it as if it like is obvious to most people. <laughs> it is completely standalone and completely unrelated. I think I picked Katana Gatari in our underrated anime episode a while back, and somehow Ravi still thought it was part of the Monogatari franchise. So I felt like I always will think it's part of the Monogatari <laughs> franchise. It ends in fucking Gatari, just like everything else in the fucking Gatari franchise. <laughs> So, Katana Gatari was one of White Fox's first adaptations and went under the radar despite the leak fiasco because of a weird monthly release schedule where each of the 12 episodes is double in length, adapting one volume of the novels. And while I understand the reasons behind Katana Gatari being relatively niche, I think it's a pretty big shame that it is. I think just from an artistic perspective, it is one of White Fox's best works, portraying a colorful and vibrant interpretation of Edo Japan with instantly recognizable character designs. Narratively, the story does what Nisio Isin does best, which is give us entertaining personalities with great chemistry. Shichika and Togame are really the heart of Katana Gatari, and their journey is filled with hilarious banter, but also heartfelt development as the two grow closer, with Shichika developing his emotions beyond being a weapon, Togame learning to de-emphasize some of her political ambitions in favor of other things that become meaningful to her. The episodic nature of the series allows each of these episodes to be dedicated to a different Blade user, as well as some theme or lesson for our two protagonists, along with some typical Nisio flair that if you've seen Monogatari or anything else that he's written or read any of his works, you're used to like each character's name essentially describing them if you really look at the meaning or having an adventure series whose principal intrigue relies on dialogue and conversation rather than the action itself. So all in all, Katana Gatari is, I think, unusual in many respects in terms of its release schedule, in terms of its art style, in terms of the emphasis on dialogue rather than action. But it's second on my list for how much of the combination of those things I just really, really love. That end, the ending hits fucking hard. And I don't know if you're going to watch this, but I hope eventually Yo, you'll watch it. don't spoil that, bro. I'm going to fucking watch this. Just like I'm going to watch Bakemonogatari. Well, 
<laughs> so my question is, are you going to just watch this at some point or are you going to watch this only after you watch the rest of the Bada Guitar franchise? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> because you think it's a sequel. <laughs> Probably the latter. <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> <laughs> and Togabe has white hair. She says cheerio all the time as a catchphrase. So it pretty much has everything you'd like. Is that the yellow-haired one that eats donuts? No, that's actually in Monogatari. <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> All right, and then finally, our number one picks, yours was ReZero and mine was Steins Gate. Are there any other series that weren't in our top fives that we need to say anything about? I feel like we kind of already touched on everything. There's honestly nothing that Goblin outstanding Slayer. for me. We don't need to talk about that. There's nothing that outstanding wow. for me in terms of White Fox things I haven't seen that I like really, really want to see, to be honest. I think I've seen most of the series that I'm interested in seeing. I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, I feel the same way. Honestly, I do want to see Goblin Slayer because it's just the memes. But what I'm also really interested in, what White Fox seems to have gone deep into is that show that you mentioned before, which is Uta Barrera Mono. And Perfect. I do not. <laughs> no notes. I do not understand why they have now three entries within this franchise. I'm somewhat no interested in this. On Mal, it has a strong 7.6, which is actually above my cutoff, I think. So I will watch it at some point. I mean, it might be good, but just watch Katana Guitari and Girls Last Tour first. And then oh, I need to watch fucking Nisei Monogatari and Baku Monogatari. <laughs> What's the other one? He doesn't know the rest. <laughs> I actually don't know. Uh, Katana Guitari, Katana Monogatari. No. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So really quickly before I ask you one last question, you want to run through your top five really quick for people? Sounds good. So number five, Akime Got Kill. Four was Jormungand. Three was Devil is a Part-Timer. Two was Steinsgate. And one, number one, was ReZero. I don't understand. <laughs> For me, my number five was Devil's a Part-Timer, four was ReZero, three was Girls' Last Tour, two was Katana Guitari, and number one was Steins Gate. Last question, anything specific you'd like to see from White Fox moving forward or any expectations you have from the studio? Yeah, Devil's a Part-Timer season two, just done again <laughs> by White Fox. The repeat. <laughs> the repeat. No, I'm really interested to see, because they don't work on a lot of original content and because I'm not familiar with either the light novel or original novel space, what new things they're going to come out with. I think that all of the adaptations so far have been incredible, I kind of got kill aside. And so I, I'm just very interested to see what new light novels or visual numbers they're going to adapt. I think that if they actually did... Do you another Devil's a Part-Timer? I would fucking love that. I'm it's really excited happening. for ReZero <laughs> to come out. I don't really know. Like, White Fox is one of those studios that, like, just their track record of making visual novels and light novels is fantastic, but it's just a space I'm not familiar with. So I'm excited for whatever they're going to do. Yeah, I think for me, I'm obviously excited for season three of ReZero. I think generally I'd like to see them pick up more interesting adaptations. I think stuff like Katana Guitar and Girls Last Tour are great blueprints for slightly more niche source material that they've done a really good job adapting. And those are the kind of projects that I'm drawn to and that I would really like to see more of. They don't seem at all interested in making original works or straying too far from fantasy or sci-fi. So I think- That's fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah. So I think the most I can realistically hope for is picking projects that just align more with the anime that I enjoy watching. So- 
Yeah. We'll see if that is the case with like one entry a year. See you in 2025 <laughs> after season three. <laughs> All right. That's been it from us for the White Fox anime episode. Let us know if you agree with Ravi putting ReZero above Steinsgate and just generally what your top five would be <laughs> or your favorite anime. <laughs> you should, as you should. <laughs> <laughs> and generally what your favorite anime that they've produced are. Our next episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive on Haikyuu, as I alluded to at the beginning of the episode. So stay tuned for that coming out in two weeks. Subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. I usually say Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, but Stitcher's actually going under. Did you know that? Like, they're actually closing. You actually told me that, and I'm like, now you got to put the fucking random one that Hope uses. I got to, like, change the fucking outro now, and I think people mostly just use Apple Podcasts, Spotify. So subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you use either of those two services, leave us a rating and a review there. This is really messing you up. Yeah. Because I usually say you're anywhere else you get your podcast, which, you know, we still exist everywhere else to get your podcast, just not Stitcher anymore, I guess. Check out our website, bakaventure.com, and follow us on Twitter slash X. Oh, it's X.com. Man, we're really fucking up this episode. I refuse to use X. It's for, X. gonna forever be Twitter at bakaventure. Otherwise known as Pod. pornhub.com. <laughs> the gentleman's app, X. <laughs> Join our Discord. We'd love to have you there. Just chat about anime or about anything else that's on your mind. We have a pretty active community of people there. It's been a lot of fun chatting to people. So you can find the links for that on our website or linked, pinned, whatever it's called now, I don't know anymore, to our profile on Twitter. And otherwise, that's been it from us. We've been the Baka Banter Lads. Catch you all in the next one. Bye.